This is a Geek Bro Podcast. What's up, besties? This is episode 44 in teen of Child Like It Best with Mike Valdez, and I am still the second part of that title. Oh boy, I am so excited about today's episode. Today's episode is Kyle Clark. Kyle is a very funny stand-up comedian and podcaster. He has three comedy albums, Pizza Night, I'm a Person, and Absolute Terror that are out on his comedy record label. He's the host of the podcast This Is Rad, as well as the horror movie podcast Everything Is Scary, and he's also the producer of The Jackie and Lori Show on Maximum Fun. This episode is so fun. We talk about everything music, we talk about movies, we talk about comedy, we reminisce on the old meltdown days, and so much more. Kyle is such a genuinely awesome person, and I've always considered him to be my stand-up comedy big brother, because he's one of the few people that I've met that I want to impress when I'm on stage, and I can't thank him enough for that. I really think that you guys are going to love this episode, so without further ado, please enjoy the very rad Kyle Clark. Hey everybody, this is Child Like It Best with Mike Valdez. Hey guys, guess what? I'm Mike Valdez, and today I have a really amazing guest with me, the very funny, the very talented Kyle Clark. Hello. What's up, man? How's it going, sir? It's going well, dude. Yeah, man. I'm I'm super excited to have you. It's been way too long since we've seen each other, and I'm so excited that we finally get to see each other in these weird circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> I always figured his face would be on a TV the next time I saw him, but I it would be some sort of weird Ninja Turtle-style world takeover. <laughs> yeah. There'd just be Mike Valdez flags everywhere, and he runs the Foot Clan now. Oh, man. You think I'm going to be Danny from the Ninja Turtles? <laughs> or, more like... Uh, like, you know one of those stories where it's like, it's always the guy you least suspect who takes over the world. You're such a kind man. That oh, like, man. I can see him just going full, like, like, like all right, everybody, <laughs> smile, but first get in the cage. <laughs> I'm on to you, Mike. That's what this episode is about. I'm blowing it wide open. I would never do that, ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So the, the first question I like to ask all of my guests before we get started is, can you please tell our listeners where you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Simi Valley, California. Well, I was, was born in Van Nuys, and then I lived my first five years in Camarillo, California, and then moved to Simi Valley. And I've been, with exception, you know, the years I was in school and stuff like that, you know, and I work and travel a lot, but, but been based out of Simi Valley. Yeah, man. A little uh, suburban Southern California town in Ventura County, right on the L.A. County line. Right. Simi Valley is where the poltergeist house is, right? Yes. Yeah. We have the poltergeist house. Uh, we came up with that real bad verdict for the Rodney King trial. Uh, and, <laughs> yes. Uh, what's our, and what's our third thing? There's another one. Oh, and the Manson Caves are here. Like Spawn Ranches is, is just oh, goodness. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. That's insane. I used to get the Poltergeist House and the Amityville Horror House confused because when I was a kid and didn't know horror movies. Right. So they were always like, oh, the Poltergeist House is here. So I was always looking in town trying to find the Amityville House and okay. was always like very upset <laughs> that I couldn't find it. And then years later saw Poltergeist. I was like, oh, it just looks like my house. Now I get it. <laughs> it just looks like my house. Like, I think it's part of why because I, I saw Poltergeist for the first time only maybe like five, six years ago, which right. is always one of those ones where like I was, was not a horror fan as a kid. And then by the time I got into horror, I was like, I'm going to watch, you know, Steven Spielberg horror movie. How good could that be? And then it turns out years later, pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) And and really kind of came into when I started to really appreciate Toby Hooper. 
Yes. Like that I went back and was like, okay, I know people kind of go back and forth on this, but I definitely see, I think the reasons that it's so effective as a horror movie. Sorry to fully to overtake this shit with you asking a very innocent question. That's uh, completely fine. That's why I have you on. <laughs> but I think that balance is sort of what makes it such a successful movie. Of course. You get, uh, you know, that mix of childish wonder, but also like the real no holds kind of surrealist nightmare stuff that Toby Hooper's so good about. Right, absolutely. I don't think I saw that movie until recently as well, just because uh, I always like to watch all the movies before Halloween Horror Nights. I was about to say, shout out to to, to the boys and girls uh, working working Halloween Horror Nights and get everything set up. That that entire crew, I think that is maybe one of the greatest mazes they've ever done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that maze is a goddamn master's. Oh, because you have the Florida ones. So you get the two floor mazes. Yes, yeah, I have a couple friends who have now uh, they got got TV money uh, and they are also young horror nerd writers in the industry who right. flew to Florida for a weekend to go to horror nights and then fly back. And I and I hate how much they told me that I was like, oh, I hate how much I think that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> A lot of some people go for Star Wars land or to see some cool thing or head to that. Like, no, I just hear that your mazes are bigger and have two floors. It's the best. I haven't gone to the one out in Los Angeles, but it would be it would be cool because you guys have different stuff as well. We have different stuff. Ours is very much almost entirely based on intellectual properties. That's right. Like, not that I haven't done uh, too much research, uh, (laughs) but but, uh, you know, I'm fascinated with the Florida version because it has all the mascots. Yes, it's fascinating to me because I think part of it is that like. Because there's kind of like two two big ones with with Scary Farm and Horror Nights, right. and like both are transcendently wonderful in very different ways. And they have you know different design philosophies and different approaches to maze design, and their characters act in different ways and have different kind of like ways that they're set to act. And so it's just been, always been interesting to me because like both are my fa- both are my favorite thing in the world collectively. And if I have to make a choice, like I'm always going to pick the slightly more indie angle so i always lean a little more towards kind of the handmade you know scary farm feel right that's kind of what fascinates about the florida horror nights is that like you get a little bit of both of those things you get some of the kind of handmade more original pieces along with i mean like the the property stuff is amazing you know when they when they really crush it i've been in a few in the last couple years i think the poltergeist was transcendent i think the us maze was was truly yeah that was great me how how good it was like that could have been amazed that you did okay and just threw a bunch of people in red suits and called it a day. And instead, <laughs> right. they really went the extra mile with that one in a way that impressed me. Did you guys have the From Dusk Till Dawn one like we six did. or seven years ago? Yeah. I was shocked how good that one was. Yeah, like, man. Oh, my gosh. it was. That's one of my favorites of all time, actually. So there was that one. And I want to say another one that was one of my favorites was... Uh, American Werewolf in London. That, that was a really was good one. That was great. And the also, other one that always surprised me is that was the, the La Llorona one. That was yes. actually one of the original mazes. Yes. It's still maybe to me like the gold standard for the universal mazes. Absolutely. I believe they did it twice here in Orlando. Yeah. And then later on they made a movie for it. So, well, it's actually well, it's an old Mexican folk tale. Right, so right. Actually, the maze has nothing to do with the movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> the movie is actually based on, I guess, like Diego Luna helped design it, which is one of those things. Like, he's maybe one of the only celebrities who I ever want to meet because I have one very specific question. It's like, <laughs> hey, how did you get attached to designing this? And why did you design the best maze and then quit? Like, you either need to tell <laughs> yeah. me what happened and say it was in name only, or you got to quit acting and make mazes. <laughs> That's amazing. Just to ask you the next question here what kind of kid would you say that you were growing up? Like, who did you sit with at the lunch table? That kind of thing. I I don't know. I was like an odd duck. Like I would sort of sit with whoever 
like at the lunch table. Like, I don't know that I developed like a crew until I was in like maybe middle school. I had like okay. friends, but I was always that guy with like friends, but then like not all of that friends, friends were super keen on this guy hanging out. Yeah. I think as a kid, I was, was real scared and real imaginative, which is a terrifying combination to have as a kid. Sure. Uh, so it was a lot of imagination. And then I was also like pretty obsessed with media. So I was also like, like way into imagination, way into stories and way into like playing pretend and doing stuff, but also like fucking love TV. Yeah. You know, like Simpsons since birth. And, oh, yeah. and you know, for the longest time, if something was animated, it didn't matter what the content was. You have my attention, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a Nick Jr. thing or weird anime that I'm happening to find on TV or like whatever it is. Like, I remember like being real fascinated by the idea of the movie Baby's Kids. OK, because it was an animated movie for adults. And I was like, what is that <laughs> legal? Like, and, and so I think a lot of like kind of curiosity about stuff and, and maybe not always like the resources to like fully indulge those curiosities, but also like always curious, always into things, was obsessed with dinosaurs, loved Jurassic Park. Same here. Was a very much a a sci-fi kid. Loved, you know, loved a lot of sci-fi, you know, didn't understand what Star Trek was, but God damn it, they were on a spaceship. So I was on board. (laughs) Yeah. Any, any sci-fi TV shows or weird adventure things or like, I was big Xena and Hercules watcher, uh, nerdily inclined in all the ways that they have made sure that like to get rid of as far as like modern nerd culture goes yes <laughs> like they're just like no you were into back to the future i'm like but i'm pretty sure i like this syndicated show that ran on channel no <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like i love anything like the weird whatever you enjoyed as a kid i enjoyed the off-brand version of it because i just wanted to dig deeper and go more like power rangers i always think of as like i liked power rangers so that means i'm digging deep into beetleborgs i'm digging into vr troops into the tattooed teenage alien fighters from Beverly Hills. <laughs> nice. It was a real show. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I missed a lot of the like tenants that, you know, are kind of the, the big ones, but like loved a lot of stuff really passionately, you know, and, and it kind of sort of all over the place, but definitely just like uh, an excited, imaginable, probably difficult uh, uh, young person. It, it's so funny too, because your knowledge of pop culture blows even my mind because like (laughs) because a lot of people who know me especially as i am on stage i'm a i'm a very pop culture kind of person and i still remember this to this day man there was a show that that you guys did at meltdown called retro rad and uh and baby yeah it was an amazing show and it's the only show i've had fail three separate times in three different iterations and i'm still like we'll get that fourth one we're gonna figure (laughs) this out it's it's i loved it uh, people who watch it seem to enjoy it it has resoundly failed on three separate runs uh at (laughs) at three different forms and i'm still like i'm gonna figure it out i'm gonna get this shit figured out yeah i love the idea and like so there's a there was a part in the show that was basically like stump kyle <laughs> and it was oh yes like, oh, it was uh win kyle clark's dignity i did right. ben stein's money but against the guest the co-host and the audience yes oh my goodness man i mean you knew everything even even down to like cool juice was what steve urkel drank to become stefan urkel. urkel yeah well i mean what else would it be <laughs> yeah which is different what than goo punch, which is what goo started a business to sell to try to impress melanie yes <laughs> i love it Oh my goodness, goo punch. That was that reference was for one person and it was me. 
I love it. Also, growing growing up, you were kind of a music guy, right? You were in a bunch of bands. I I got into music when I was in like sixth or seventh, or maybe fifth or sixth grade, and right. it, and it was a weird process because it started the way it does for every young person when you get into the first CD you owned, which of course is always going to be the Where in the World Is Carmen San Diego the Game Show soundtrack. <laughs> right. Featuring Rockapella, Tito Puente, and the Three Woodsmen, uh, a band that, as far as I can tell, only exists on that CD and are probably the producers of the show. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, you know, and from there, kind of like I, I was a bit, I think it's why I'm such have such an affinity for '90s music in yeah. general, kind of across the board. Is that that was kind of the first times I was getting aware of just music in general as a thing. Right. Like was always kind of aware it was out there, but was really like all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, there's all these different artists and all these different things. And then was kind of this like omnivore and then kind of discovered MTV and MTV has this such a weird mixture in the 90s of like the most mainstream trash and crashed up against some of the most subversive television I've ever seen. Starts with liquid television, ends with Sif and Ali and Daria. Also, you know, has all this dumb bullshit in between. And I think that, like, in some ways, like, that colored a lot of my, like, palette and appreciation where it's, like, appreciate all, have reverence for none. And then that changed when I got into, like, eighth grade because that's when I kind of discovered punk rock because I was, was, like, fat and awkward and huge uh and was just just a just a an ordeal to be around um, and and felt super uncomfortable in my own body and and you know just just in general felt very uncomfortable all of the time and then i remember very distinctly like looking at something about punk rock with some other awkward kids and then seeing like some dude see the pictures of like punk rock guys and it like freaked him out and like a lightning bolt hit my brain where I'm like, wait a minute, we've developed a weapon. Uh, and and so it went from like, oh, I'm not fat and awkward, I'm punk, fuck you. Yeah. Like, you know, and that, you know, was, was the thing I leaned on hard. But also it's always funny to me because like the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that like my vision of like what becoming punk rock was and what the the experience of becoming punk rock was are not necessarily the same, you know, and I'm grateful for what I ended up with because it's very much colored who I am. But like, I didn't realize that for a lot of people, they just like bought that jacket and called it a day. Right. And for me, it was like, wait, you can build a whole lifestyle around a DIY <laughs> culture where you don't have to like look at this stuff and you can find a way to live your life without having to get the approval of the people who you already don't want to be around. <laughs> and other people were like, I got the jacket. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, yes. so, but it's good because it led me into a much wider birth of interest. Like I yeah. love, I love hardcore punk. Like, you know, it is some of my favorite shit in the world still. You know, mm-hmm. when I hear a band that kind of, harkens back to something crazy and heavy. Like the first time I heard like drug church, I was just like, holy shit, this is, these guys get it. These guys know what's up. Or like when I discovered like fucked up and found that there was like, wait, there's a version of like a punk band, but it's also like kind of dorky operettas along with it. Like, this is amazing. And I think that came from, you know, I, did you have like a person in your life, like an older person who theoretically wasn't your parents? Sometimes it's your parents. I find it sometimes sticks better when it's not your parents. Right. Like here's some bands to check out. You know, and they've usually got like a bias. And I find that that bias often like colors the generations they influence. Well, Uh, this is going to sound funny. Most people do have that person. But I, you know, and I don't know if you if you know this about me, the listeners know if they've listened, but 
I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, so I wasn't allowed very many things. But one thing that I did learn was there would always be these like poster board things at Christian bookstores that would say, if you like Jimmy Eat World, you'd love Stellar Cart. <laughs> or if you, if you love Blink-182, you'd love Reliant K. And yes. that's how I found out who the good bands were. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No lie. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, so if I go the opposite way, those are the bands that the Christian bands are trying to emulate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I always get so so like 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 I'm fascinated by that world of stuff because by the time I learned like uh, like because I have a real like affinity uh, as an adult for like Christian hardcore. Sure. Just because it's hardcore, but like like and and especially like. It was like, because at first when it was like Reliant K or something like that, I'm like, this is lame. And right. then I found like Silent Planet and The Chariot. Yes. And, and even to a lesser extent, like an Under Oath or something is like a gateway to that. Of course. And like The Chariot especially, I was just like, wait a minute. You can't trick me. This is good. Uh, <laughs> and and I think it's because like when I was in high school, all of the traditional art programs that you're supposed to find refuge in as a weirdo had born-again Christians had already invaded. Right. It's like the band program and theater and all this shit. And so I had to just like bail out and go full music scumbag street punkery because all the things that would have been a good influence on me were full of Jesus. And I was like, (laughs) look, I'm not mad, but like we're good. Yes. I've read far too much Sandman and Alan Moore and Preacher to like be on your team. Right. Like I've seen the other option and it seems like there's a lot of cool shit over there. So like have a time. I'll be over here in heathen town. Yeah, dude, that's great. Tell me about some of these bands that you were in. Like, what skate parks did you play at? You know, uh, like, oh we don't, I don't think we ever played a skate park. Really? Like, my my early bands are so weird. Okay. Um, I keep I found almost all of the masters for the bands I was in in high school, like a while back. And okay. I keep thinking about putting them on This Is Rad's Patreon. Yeah, like, you should. At some point, it's it's uh, you know, it's an odd thing, like because because I I. You know, I, I laugh sometimes. Like, I don't know if I'll ever care about anything as much as I cared about my first two bands in high school. Well, I was in a band that my best friend and a, the only drummer anybody knew and this other kid were in. <laughs> and I kind of like conned my way into being the rhythm guitar player for a show. And there was no <laughs> singer. They just played like Led Zeppelin songs instrumentally. And I would just like hit some chords because there's no <laughs> second guitar in Led Zeppelin. Like, and then I got kicked out of that. And then shortly after I got kicked out of that band, that guitar player quit playing music to go make m- movies. And so then that drummer and bass player were like, well, you seem full of enthusiasm. And I was like, well, I got a bunch of songs. And I'm gonna, and I got plans. And so we kind of hit the ground running. And almost a year to a day of the time we had played prior, like the next year we played uh, as this new band, which was called the Doppler Effect. Originally with an E, eventually with an A. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> we had to change it at one point for legal reasons. It was literally uh, I my, my old joke for to find a good band name. You either got to open up a, a, a history book or a science book and just pick a random you know <laughs> word. Yes. So originally I wanted to call a band endoplasmic reticulum because <laughs> of course I did. Uh, and then eventually we settled on the Doppler effect. I forget it was between the Doppler effect and I think the overtones. Okay. Which too much like the Deftones. Yeah. Uh, and so, so or the supertones. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then. Like and that band was like a bluesy jam band, but that was also punky, but by way largely of like the Pixies and the Velvet Underground. Yeah, because like those were like when I was finding punk, it wasn't like oh man, I love the Dead Kennedys. I was like Lou Reed's rock and roll animal seems neat, and <laughs> okay. also like the Pixies, the Sonic Youth are a thing I like, so I've decided they're punk. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you know like my favorite band for most of high school was the Eels. 
because they were sad but also noisy. And I was like, holy shit, they found both. <laughs> yeah, that's things true. That, like, lots of obnoxious sounds and also talk about sadness. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's why the emo bug never got me is I already had my band to be sad to. And okay. then that opened up, you know, like I remember a girl showing me Elliot Smith or me discovering, you know, any number of other things, you know, and then eventually kind of getting sucked over into the folk punk stuff. And that's like later, but like that first run, I'm into like all these like noisy, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, art rock bands. And yeah. then my bass player's favorite bands are like the who, and our drummer is really into like the red hot chili peppers and rage. I think like rage is like the band we could all agree on. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and he's like Jack Johnson. And then he slowly got into Jesus. And so he was like, what about we did some newsboys covers? And I just be like, how about no, <laughs> uh, uh, when and, the toast and is burning, just, <laughs> and I'm just like, sorry, friend. Uh, <laughs> what's that? A third Pixies cover? Okay. Uh, I love it. I'm trying to think what that. Well, that band actually had a weird set of covers because we would do like we did Magic Carpet Ride, and what were other like go-to ones live? Oh, we did Last Out This Town from the Eels, and what was our other go-to cover? We had like one more in the run of ones, and then we that band. I was in bands that played a lot of parties. Like a lot of kids were like, it's our birthday, play our party. Okay. And, and, you know, so we would play a lot of like our friends' birthday parties. We need to figure out how to pad shit out. So we like had a vamp where we would do the, the, you know, DCGC kind of run. Right. And we do like uh, the Joker from Steve Miller and then go into like Summer Lovin' from Greece. And the bass player who was like the lead singer would sing the, the Danny Zuko parts. And I'd sing the Sandy parts in a falsetto. <laughs> Uh, you know, and shit like that. And so, and that band was together. We did a, a full length album and put that out. And it's, it's the thing that I would put out. It's, it's, it's funny. Cause a, the production values are the most 2000 fucking two thing you've ever heard. <laughs> right? It is, it is just, just a digital, you know, medium tier pro tools. It's the finest digital recording 2002 could offer. My brother and I have ongoing, cause my brother's a musician and a sound engineer too. Yeah. And we recently had many conversations about how like, you know, 10 years ago, it's crazy to think how expensive, you know, I'm running, you know, all my audio for all the quarantine episodes of our show through a focus, right? Scarlet single. And, you know, which, you know, you can buy for $50 used on reverb. And at the same time, like, I remember trying to look into getting, you know, interfaces, you know, even in the days of the M box where it was like, well, for $700, you can get the shitty one right. and it's got all the security that will make it impossible to use. You know, <laughs> And now that's just, laughable and even think back you know jumping back that was 2010 2000 you know and so to jump back to 2002 you know eight years prior to that like it's insane to think about like what that band was recording on in a, in a guy's house right and it, it but it also kind of made me fall in love with stuff like you know like the early all the early oc punk records i'm okay. kind of obsessed with because they were all recorded in kind of like low rent garage studios or like small garage stuff in the burbs and i think like when I got a little older, that really became one of my big obsessions with punk was that early OC punk rock scene. Cause it's like 15 year old kids going up to weird burnt out 40 year olds with recording equipment and going, Hey, we're going to make stuff that people will still listen to in 45, 40 years. Like <laughs> right. this is fucking crazy. You know, you yeah. listen, I still listen to living in darkness. I'm just like, it's insane that this was recorded in two days in a garage in Orange County. <laughs> and I have probably listened to this album a thousand times, <laughs> but, but uh, so the production value on it is what it is. Also in that record, there's at least two songs that are the two where like most of the record I'd still put out and just be like, hey, it's what it is. There's two songs. One, 
One, I, I don't love the idea of releasing because it's uh, uh, a song that is such a byproduct of uh, a, a boy in a very specific time. It's all about how, like, video game girls are better than regular girls. Okay. And, uh, yeah, not great. Uh, don't love it. But, like, again, it was written by a 15-year-old in 2001. He didn't – I don't think 9-11 had happened before I wrote that song. Right. Like, let's put it that way. Like, yeah. that, that song is living in a different time. Yes. Uh, and it was one of the ones we cut from the set early on because that's the thing that kills me about that band sometimes. Like, a lot of the songs – as I was like learning how to write songs, didn't get recorded because we'd already done that first record. That's literally, I think like it's maybe it's 10 of maybe the first 12 songs that I ever wrote are on that record. You know, we cut one and one we cut while we were writing songs and the rest of them, that is just what the record is. And so there's, there's that one. And then there's another one called See Me CA that had a very contentious lifespan because it's the song I sang lead vocal on and I was trying to do kind of like a Lou Reed take a walk on the wild side dirty boulevard kind of talk thing thing about how my town is boring (laughs) right and it is my dad loves it right Uh, and 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 people find it charming now that I'm a 33 year old man (laughs) you know it's it's more okay now than it was then uh and so it's it's a weird you know weird game there but but so that one i'll put it out because people will laugh at it pretty aggressively it's humorous <laughs> my girlfriend i played part of it for once like and she was just like yeah it's the funniest thing i've ever heard uh <laughs> and you know and then that jumps to my second band which was called so that band breaks up because the drummer finds jesus and can't be in a band with me right. which was weird because like i was a like super straight edge good boy and our drug our bass player my best friend was like kind of growing into he would grow up to have some problems and those pieces were starting to become aware at that age yeah and uh you know ultimately it was always so weird to me that like i was the bad one uh and but eventually me and and he my bass player best friend growing up uh was just a musical prodigy incredible singing voice crazy good bass player just a gifted god's gift to music truly and we were kind of a writing duo i did lyrics and i would write you know some stuff or I'd throw lyrics at him and he put it together and then I kind of figure out my part, but we kind of wrote songs together. It's also weird when I look at it. I think he's like the only person I've had that crazy level of like a collaboration with. Uh, but uh, he went on and played in like, like one of the big bands in town, not big, but they were like the band that were always dubbed like the best of the bands. Cause there yeah. was this kid who played guitar for them who just like was the shredness little shredder on planet shred. He had long blonde <laughs> hair. He had a long Penny Lane style, like furry floor length coat. Like they were just, they were a cool band. They were called Heresy. It's a good band name. <laughs> Heresy, uh, that's great. And then eventually he was like, hey, that's cool, but like we should do something. And by that point, he and I are on a steady diet of social distortion, uh, hot water music, and this brand new band that uh, was sold to me originally as being a less good hot water music. And they were called Against Me. And they had just put out uh, uh, this record called Reinventing Axl Rose like the year before. And it was like, oh man, these songs are great. Like, and look, they sound all lo fi in this and the, the kind of proto folk punky kind of stuff. And that little bit of like punky classic Rocky hybrid was what that band was all about. Uh, we were called Letters from Memphis. And for forever, we were looking for a drummer. And then one night we're at my friend's house that was like the friend party house and we're all standing outside doing whatever. And in the garage where our friend's band, that was their rehearsal space. We hear somebody just wailing on the drums and it's not like technical, but it's just like, it's banging. Like it's, it's, it's the best kind of like noisy, fast punk rock drumming. And we have no idea who it is because standing next to me is the drummer whose kid it is. So I'm just like, who the hell's playing drums if you're standing out here? Wow. And I walk inside and it's this guy I've known forever. My buddy Kirby is just like blackout drunk and he is just wailing on the drums. And he is just like a weird child prodigy. Uh-huh. You know, he's this t- 
tiny little guy. It's funny because he's almost my height now, but when we were younger, he was very small. Like okay. he, got, he had giant hands, giant feet, tiny body, and then grew into being a monster <laughs> now, and it's great. But he is with his crazy long appendages, just like an octopus playing drums. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> right. Purple cartoon octopus. And so we, you know, I had a drum kit at my house because my brother played. And so I was like, just come over and practice at our house. You can just play drums there. Like, and he's like, I don't have a kit. I'm like, we'll figure that out later. We need a drummer. And I like you more than I like the rest of the drummers in town. Right. Uh, and so the three of us played in that band. And I, some part of my heart below we like went with that band when it died because we were together for 11 months we put out like three releases played like 30 something shows like did all this wow. crazy shit in like less than a year and it's like the most intense i've ever been about anything was just like that fucking band yeah because it was like me and basically my best friends and we were in a band where i like the music like i'm getting to sing a little bit more it, you know i'm getting better at playing i've learned how to like do some solos and kind of get some stuff. And I've got kind of an identity musically of what I want to do. And we're all just trying to get as raspy, those, those Laura Jane Grace fucking uh, vocals, just getting as, you know, off those first couple against me records as we yeah. can. Uh, probably the reason we all have these like raspy tenors as adults, or, you know, or these raspy baritones as adults. Just, <laughs> probably. Uh, damage yeah. I did to my throat at 16. <laughs> um, and then that band fell apart because uh, the the other two guys kind of got a little more into partying than than being in a band, uh, and and that made me you know wrecked me for a while. And then eventually I put together in my twenties like a band called Lutheran Gun Club that is a whole other fucking run of stories. We were we went through we had thirteen members across five years. We're the oh only my two gosh. members were me and my brother uh, with not a ton of like releases. Cause I was just a hot mess in my late teens, early twenties uh, where every five minutes, the band's going in a new direction. We're changing everything. This is all, I made the band wear uniforms for a while. I was a nightmare person. Wow. Um, and then when that fell apart, I kind of got burnt on music by the end of that band. Everybody hated each other, including me and my brother. And yeah. I then kind of jumped from that did a folk album that still exists online. Occasionally radsters find it. Then after that kind of was like, okay, I'm going to get a camera and maybe try to do movies. And then movies was expensive. And so I was like, I guess I'll be a comedian. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that That's, was way too much answer. Honestly, though, you, <laughs> I'm glad you answered that because we, I mean, and there was a lot of emotions in that answer, but it's just true because we, you know, our, especially our first bands, we put so much of our heart into it. It's a feeling that I definitely can agree with where it's I like... I have a weird, complicated relationship with it. Right. Because, like, when I started playing in bands was, like, and playing around the start of the time, I was starting to write a lot, too, like, yeah. creatively. And I always have, like, a, a, a bit of guilt because, like, there was a guy who he and I were working on, like, a comic book. And he was an artist and I was a writer. And I'd been writing all these comic book scripts. And I was kind of getting a little bit known for these like funny little scripts that I would do, yeah. you know, and, and people seemed to enjoy them. And then he started doing art for him. And I always had this kind of shitty guilt because like I kind of bailed on comics because like there was way more immediate gratification and girls in music than there was in like writing and comic books. Sure. And, and I, and I laugh because like sometimes I look back and go like, God, if I'd gone the other direction, like I feel like things really would have panned out. <laughs> I look back to music time and it's some of the, my favorite times in life, but also I'm sort of like, oh man, I could have like a career now if I'd gone that other way. <laughs> and I feel bad. I, I, you know, kind of bailed on that guy. And it's, it's one of those things I always kind of live with and go like, oh, I wish I had played that different. And I've still never made a comic. So it's, it's a real like, uh, you know, thing that haunts me. Yeah, but you definitely will. Knowing you, I'm sure you have a bunch of ideas. I can't draw with guitar. Like <laughs> 
Believe me, I've tried. It's ruined a Squire Stratocaster. <laughs> That's great. I want to move on into our next bit. Out of curiosity, what were your favorite snacks growing up? Ooh, I mean, all of them. The ones that were in sure. my mouth. I was a fat kid and enjoyed <laughs> eating above all else. I would say a ham and cheese Hot Pocket was pretty high. Yeah. I loved a pizza bagel. I'm trying to think, like, kind of anything. I was, I was a, a real, like, I was like omnivorous creature. That's you know, I've never, I've never been a wildly picky eater. Okay, you know, and as far as like snack foods and fast food and stuff like that go, like, you know, I, I was following the trends as a big cartoon watcher. I was kept abreast of what new snack foods I were to try. So, like, when I saw Dunkaroos hit the scene, I was like, "Mom, we got to get on this." Oh that yeah, is a cup of frosting. <laughs> yes. Uh, Love a a lunchables nacho situation. Okay, <laughs> nacho uh, situation. That's what they like, were called. You know those things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm trying to think like what else were big big jump offs. But like you know, loved a nerd. Enjoyed a sweet tart. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think like what else. Oh, uh, I believe it was eighth grade. They like. Are you old enough that you remember when they used to let you have candy in school? <laughs> I wasn't allowed anything, Kyle. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You've got the, the added, added yes. element there. Uh, but, like, I'm, like, the last generation where, like, candy was, like, still running around in schools and sodas and stuff like that. It was a golden age. Yeah. And I remember very distinctly, like, our choir was always fucking hawking candy in middle school because they had yeah. to go places for events. So they, and they, they had a good system because they just had those, those nice choir girls rocking around with bags of candy. Yeah. And it was like, this feels like, like the, the child version of some sort of weird mafia thing. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, and so that, but they always had these weird bags of Reese's pieces. And okay. that's definitely when I got, and I'm still obsessed with Reese's pieces. I'm definitely like a little less snack obsessed than it used to be i love a snack but i love a snack more abstractly now than i used to sure um but uh but the reese's pieces like we uh, this year for for easter did the reese's pieces eggs yes. instead of like chocolate eggs like where they're the little hard candy shell ones and those things are a goddamn revelation man like, i'm not amazing. even joking that reese's egg is amazing it's the well, best this is different than the reese's egg because the reese's egg classic thing yeah the reese's pieces egg oh i didn't know like that was a, a thing tiny, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's that's the new jam. Okay. Because like, like, you know those, like, you know, little candied eggs where it's like a hard candy shell on the outside and chocolate on the inside? Like yeah. Like a candy M&M kind of thing? They have those, but it's Reese's Pieces on the inside. No way. Yeah, it's That's amazing. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I love it. So what, here's another thing we like to talk about on the show. Uh, were you a cereal guy growing up? I was for a little while, and then I grew to hate cereal to the point where I refused to eat it. Really? Um, because I had it every morning for breakfast for, you know, the first 12 years of my life. Oh, my And God. also, we had a couple of runs that I still look back at. And, like, look, the 2020 quarantine is bad, but it's still not as bad as the year where my mom bought two of the Costco-sized boxes of Lost World Jurassic Park marshmallow cereal. <laughs> and that's all we ate for seemingly forever. Right. Uh, and it's why when people are like, do you want Lucky Charms? My answer is much more aggressive than it needs to be because like, <laughs> I cannot enjoy a, a non-chocula-based marshmallow cereal. Oh, my gosh. Uh, because, and I think I only like Count Chocula for religious reasons. Like, right. <laughs> uh, but, but beyond that, like, uh, they just, they, they don't, I don't even think they're gross. They make me mad. Oh and I think it's goodness. because of that. And I don't think I ever quite forgave. It's maybe only been in the last, since the first version of Retro Rad. Because the yeah. first version of Retro Rad was called Saturday Morning. And it, which was on a Friday night, it was, I'm bad, I'm bad at business, um, <laughs> but I bought cereal and milk 
to have at the shows. We could eat cereal while we talked about cartoons and watch commercials and shit like that. That's a great idea. And like, it was a real mixed bag because on the one hand, no one came. But on the other hand, <laughs> Dave Plock came and he had a great time because he ate like five bowls of cereal. Right. I always distinctly just have a vision of like Dave Plock with like two empty bowls of cereal and a cereal with him just watching the show, just being supportive, <laughs> being a real friend and just like loving cereal and just like. And at that, I remember like my girlfriend at the time and I going home and like finishing off the last of the cereal and going like, maybe cereal's good again. And now, like I I am picky, but I, I enjoy a cereal. I fucking love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I yeah. actually bought a Costco box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch right before the shit went down. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, uh, on every episode of this podcast, we like to review a box of cereal. Now, I know it's going to be really tough for us to review cereal right now just because we're on a Zoom meeting. But I figured we could use our imagination, you know. Okay, well, um, well, here, throw me some, and I'll give some opinions. Okay, so here we go. I I actually like to get a specific cereal for my guest, and okay. I like cereal that relates to my guest in some way, shape, or form. So the cereal. May I, I propose a sidebar since we can't do that? Absolutely. I'm gonna throw out a cereal to you, and we're gonna explore a very real problem in this world. Okay. One that's not as important as some other problems. You're right. Uh, are you familiar with? the current state slash history of Rice Krispie Treat cereal. I have not had the current state of it. The last time I had it, I was really young. Um, okay, so you likely still had the good version. Right. So Cinnamon Toast Crunch has been doing a lot of heavy lifting in my life because my old comfort food was about three years ago. I impulse randomly at a Target and just walked past and bought a box of Rice Krispie Treat cereal because I'm like, oh, I never had this as a kid. I wonder what kind of bullshit is contained here. Right. And brought it home. And I'll explain why in a moment, but it is maybe one of the most transcendent cereal experiences I've ever had. <laughs> is it really? Uh, so when you pour it out, the consistency, you are familiar with a Rice Krispie Treat. Absolutely. It's sort of a, a puffed rice style thing. Uh, it contains a lot of air. Well, what they used to do and I will get back to that that key point used to do yeah. is that they used to run and like basically spray like liquidized melted marshmallow style pure crystalline sugar across it to the point where it was no longer crispy and rice like it was glassy like meth man. right <laughs> yes. it was it, that same way they look at fucking uh heisenberg meth on breaking bad yes you could have just uh old school rice crispy treat cereal in there and it was this beautiful <laughs> thing and it like kind of clinked like broken glass when it <clears throat> fell into your bowl and like that got your blood flowing a little bit because you knew you were about to get <laughs> the best sugar cereal experience you could have yeah okay so that was like if i had a hard month Sometimes I just go to Target and sometimes you just got to buy a box of Rice Krispie Treat cereal and just like, you know, go into a little bit of a, of a, of a Rice Krispie vendor. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and it's tough because sometimes when you say I'm going to go buy some meth, you have to forget that meth is a real thing and not just the thing <laughs> saying as a in reference to cereal. So cut to at some point last year, I had had a hell of a month. I was going to go through my little ritual and I walked in and I bought my box and I poured it out and Again, I find that marshmallows in cereal have fucked me again because they no longer sell it like that form. It's no longer methy glass that's the greatest thing you can put in milk and put in your mouth. It is now just regular fucking Rice Krispies with tiny marshmallows mixed in. That's so it dumb. Sucks. It sucks so bad, Mike. There's, like, I, I, there's no way I that's good. I threw the box away out of sadness and rage. <laughs> there's no way it's good. That doesn't and I went sound back to all. go burn Target down, but instead Cinnamon Toast Crunch had invented a side cereal called Churro Crunch. And I yeah. bought that and everyone in this world is alive because that yes. cereal exists. So I didn't We've have reviewed to that cereal like too. Yeah. So that one's solid. So, but yeah. That, very, very the, good. The, 
I, I just feel like I need to get the word out to anybody who does not know. Do not pick up Rice Krispie uh, uh, Treat Crunch. I'm actually glad that you told me this because I've thought about getting it, but now it's I definitely won't. Bullshit. <laughs> I love <laughs> I love the, the your feelings on it. It's so good. But <laughs> but I I want to I I chose this cereal for you here that I actually have it here with me. Usually I like to get a cereal that has something to do with my guest in some way, shape, or form. So I spoke with my sponsors over at Funco. Now by sponsor I mean that I like them and I buy all their products. And it's like when I yell "Shutter, give me money!" Right. And by spoke to I mean that I tweeted them repeatedly and they didn't get back to me. So the cereal that I got for you is Funco brand. Krampus cereal. Oh, fun. Yeah. Okay. I, I was really worried there was going to be an Overwatch character on that box. <laughs> why is that? I like, Mike, I thought you knew me. No. <laughs> why would why would I do that? <laughs> no, man. I definitely know you because you're fun Cohen cereal. My heart started to beat a little. Here's here's the thing, man. Okay. I, I think Krampus is perfect for you because you have Whoa. like a Christmas personality, but you're also the devil at the same. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh no, we get each other. You're high. I'm just gonna quote be quote on the back of the VHS box of Kyle. Uh, <laughs> he likes Christmas, but also the devil. <laughs> it's true. So, and also on the back here, you can you see a there's Hell a little yeah. maze. Little and and on the inside as well. If we open it, there's actually a little Krampus, Krampus little Krampus toy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Ooh, a toy in the box. Yeah, there's a toy in the box. A little Funko. Do you remember when you could do the cutout masks on the backs of cereal boxes? Yes. And all of a sudden you could be Huey, Dewey, or Louie. <laughs> yeah. I always felt like there was a real shame no one robbed a bank in those. <laughs> but I don't know. The personalities are kind of the same. <laughs> That's great. So I think it would be fun to review this cereal, but I think it'd be more fun to review this cereal as Krampus. Okay. So, again, we have to use our imaginations here. I think Krampus, uh, I feel like you want character work in a way where I'm just like, I don't know if I have that kind of voice in me. I think you uh, definitely do, man. We all know Krampus sounds like Sack Weldon. See, I can't, I can't use Sack Weldon for that because I'm literally using Sack Weldon's voice for another character. Oh, you right really? I'm working on. <laughs> it's a, uh, uh, a burning here a little bit, but it's just this character I've been doing to my family because my dad uh, is is way into uh, like, we're all way into the food of New Orleans. Not my mom, but like, but we're big on, on New Orleans. Yeah. And, my dad keeps a, a Cajun shake container. We have salt, pepper, and Cajun shake on our table. And he had to buy more. And occasionally my dad has to go to these weird, like, back alley websites to buy very specific New Orleans-based food things uh-huh. uh, for the house. And I turned into a guy who is uh, sells New Orleans-style seasonings out in an alley out of a suitcase like a drug dealer. <laughs> just constantly reminding you what you are doing isn't illegal. He just has a weird vibe. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's all just been like, I need to remind you that these vices, there is nothing illicit in them. There is no controlled substances. I just hang out back here. And so it seems like it is sketchier than it is. I have a business license. (laughs) (laughs) This is a food grade suitcase I had custom made to make sure that you are safe, which you are, because I am not a criminal. That was you all. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. But, uh. I'm Krampus and I like this cereal. (laughs) I think the box art's fun. Despite maybe some of the key design flaws that deny empathy inside of Funko <laughs> figures, I still find it kind of a festive design. <laughs> I like that they didn't go hard after the legendary film, even though it's the best representation of me in cinema still. <laughs> still. I don't want to see everything go that way. <laughs> yeah. Feels unfair to folklorists. <laughs> Why is it purple? 
That, you know, that is a good question. Why is it purple? <laughs> I can't help but feel like, no, if we're working too hard, it could have just been white, like you put snow on it. <laughs> Bam, done. I don't, you went an extra step, and I, as Krampus, I must say, I'm a bit confused. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well... Funko brand Krampus cereal, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we did it. We did it. We didn't even eat it, hope and we did it. <laughs> hope I didn't derail your segment too hard. <laughs> You're not derailing anything. This episode of Childlike at Best with Mike Valdez is brought to you by The Crunch Cup. Save time in the morning by taking your cereal on the go. Simply add cereal to the inner cup, milk into the outer cup, screw on the lid, and you're ready to crunch. Eat cereal in the car, at your desk, or anywhere else you want. Go to thecrunchcup.com to purchase what I think is a genius invention and use the discount code MikeValdez10. That's Mike, M-I-K-E, Valdez, V-A-L-D-E-S, the number 10, to save 10% off of your order. You can also sign up for their monthly giveaway to win a year's supply of cereal. So what are you waiting for? Go to thecrunchcup.com and use promo code MikeValdez10 to save 10% off of your order. The Crunch Cup. It's better than spooning. This episode of Childlike at Best with Mike Valdez is brought to you by Real Good Foods. I am so excited to announce that Real Good Foods has launched their very first dessert item, ice cream. Real Good Ice Cream is the first ever super premium, better for you ice cream. It's extra creamy, so there's no icy or chalky texture like other light ice creams, making it a real ice cream experience with real ingredients. Only 180 calories and 4 grams of sugar per serving. Real good ice cream is sweetened by using allulose, which isn't like regular sugar. It's a naturally occurring rare sweetener found in figs, dates, and maple syrup. Ultimately, it has one-tenth the calories of cane sugar, which means it won't spike your blood sugar levels. Real good ice cream comes in a variety of flavors, and starting today, they can be found at realgoodfoods.com and The Vitamin Shop. And guess what? Real Good Foods is giving all Childlike at Best listeners a discount code that'll make us all scream for ice cream. Visit realgoodfoods.com, choose as many of your favorite items, and use promo code BESTIE at checkout. That's B-E-S-T-I-E at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Real Good Foods. Keep it real. From music, when did you think, okay, comedy is now the next thing? Parallel to discovering punk rock as a very awkward, very uncomfortable fat kid, uh, I had to learn to be funny or die. And so kind of had to, you know, develop a bit of a sense of humor because I was very sensitive, did a lot of crying in my early teens uh, <laughs> and found that like humor was a real big coping skill for me from yeah. a very early age. And the biggest creator of that was The Simpsons. That, that I have been a Simpsons fan since birth, basically. You know, the show is basically as old as I am. So I just don't know a life without The Simpsons. And am I like the kind of person who's like, you know, every episode, I know every line, all things, think no. But like what I gained appreciation out of it was a very specific type of humor that I find is very like versatile in a way that is profoundly helpful if you have a very specific subset of like, like uh, social and emotional problems. Yeah. And so... Eventually, you know, over time, I le learned a little bit more how to kind of like wield that and, and also learned that like funny things are cool or, or not cool, but like are enjoyable. Yeah. And because and, like I was not like a big like 
I was never like a comedy fan. I never thought of comedy as like a genre thing I liked, but I liked comedies. But like, uh, there were also a lot of comedies that I never thought of as comedies. Like I maintain, like, I still don't think Ghostbusters is a comedy. I don't sure. think of it as a funny movie. It doesn't make me laugh. It is a document about people doing a very important and necessary job for our society, the busting <laughs> of ghosts. Right. And so it's it's why I've never understood like the great debates of, of like Ghostbusters. They're like, that comedy is perfect. What the fuck are you talking about? It's two <laughs> movies a co- and two cartoon shows and several comic books, and they all create us a whole backlog of how to deal with ghosts. Right. Like your, your amusement is irrelevant. Like I go full Vulcan. <laughs> so The Simpsons was a big thing. And then also like, Comedy was also the first place I started finding weird stuff and found that I like liking weird stuff. But it, so it was like like Syphil and Ollie on MTV. Liam Lynch's old show it was was such a profound influence on my brother. And are you familiar with this at all? I'm not. No, it, it ran at it. 1 a.m. on weeknights on MTV. And it was a show that was a radio call show hosted by Sock Puppets. Wow. OK. Uh, and it was was uh, uh, Liam Lynch and another guy. And they it, it, the show cost maybe a 100 bucks an episode. It okay. only aired later. Eventually they would run it earlier and shit like that for a very brief window. But like I remember, like staying up late at a friend's house, we snuck down and watched an episode after my friends had described friend had described it to me, and then like was like, oh well, I have to find out when to watch this at all times. And yeah. My brother found it and almost like lost his mind with it. And the show would do things like, you know, they'd get a collar in. Like the joke that sold me on the show forever was just a guy calls and goes, hey, my daughter's put a waffle in my my VCR, and, and I don't know what to do about it. And they're just like, well, if you tried pushing Jack, he's like, yeah, just shoot syrup at me. on and off and he's like yeah i tried turning on and off and then turn it on again it didn't do anything like well if you tried pushing play and he pushes play and you see him you know on the call window thing and all of a sudden a rainbow of light shoots at him he goes oh my god this is the greatest movie tv show or program i've ever seen (laughs) that's great and in that i'm just like oh this is the best thing ever like that's so good i love that and a lot of like and again like i liked a lot of like cartoons and and again like kind of shitty cartoons so it was like it wasn't even like the humor you know i feel like you see a lot of people like oh i love looney tunes i was like looney tunes was fine but like looney tunes and the usa problem child cartoon show had about equal staying power with me (laughs) so good you know like simpsons is good but i was also like but i'm willing to watch an episode of capital critters bring it to me yeah I'll watch oh, Life with Louie. That's not a problem yeah, I at loved, all. Oh, Life with Louie was a show that had multiple catchphrases absorbed into our household. Yeah. Uh, that was a big <laughs> show around here. Uh, and But, you know, didn't didn't watch a lot of stand-up or anything like that. Uh, and then, like, in high school, I saw Wet Hot, and that was a big thing. Yeah. And then, like, my second girlfriend in high school. Like, I dated, like, two girls in high school, basically. And, like, one, we bonded over music. She was a drummer. And the other one... We bonded over the fact that we both liked David Bowie and Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah. Uh, and I wish I could say that that's not something that I've had more than one relationship be the foundation of. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Sure. It's uh, the bar is very low. Um, but uh, and so kind of finding that and, and that was kind of in the vein, time period where like Adult Swim was happening. And like that early Adult Swim stuff was a huge thing. Adam Reed is a huge influence on me. You know, that's what's always so weird to me when people ask about comedy is like, who are your guys? I'm like, oh, none of them are comedians. Yeah. <laughs> so like the first... 25 years of stand-up yeah um you know adam reed was huge the you know aqua teen as a concept was yeah, just like a thing where I'm like i can't believe this is on tv finding red and small through home movies was definitely something and then like those family guy reruns the kind of like you know people can hate family guy all they want but like it's a it's a show that's just about a batting average you know right. and and for every shitty joke they have which there's a lot you know they occasionally hit on something where i'm like oh that's an excellent joke and it right. was and by that time in high school, two things happened. One, 
again, this is way longer an answer than you needed. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not, Kyle. <laughs> all of my friends that kind of coalesced into our little like dirty punk rocker boy group, uh, everybody was funny because everybody was kind of mean. Okay. And so it's you had just had to have in the chamber two or three of the meanest things you can say that are also clever ready to go at all times because somebody's going to throw something. You just got to have something ready to shoot back. And then also you're all just kind of dogpiling on riffs and stuff. Like it's, it's, uh, you know, whatever is happening at school, whatever's happening at the event, we are running our silly version of it scenario. And again, they were all vile, awful, mean things often, again, largely directed towards ourselves, sometimes to other people, but like we were just, just snappy, like, yeah. uh, you know, a bunch of sass bags. And uh, that was a big thing. And then also, in like seventh or eighth grade, I started like writing stuff. And it, when I first started writing, I, and I always had like a distinct memory of like a history or a history teacher I had who I thought was cool, who looking back did not like me. Said something about like, oh, you're probably like writing some superhero stories. And I was like, yeah, I was. <laughs> I thought that she like, I thought I'd been seen instead of realized she was actually like taking a dig at me. Oh my God. That's always a weird feeling later on where you're like, oh, that person was not my friend. Yeah. Uh, you know, and originally it was all kind of like earnest. Like I was obsessed with like superheroes who fight vampires because Blade was a movie. Yeah. And uh, and then it kind of evolved into finding like Kevin Smith was a big thing because all of, of a sudden course. it was like, oh, he talks about Star Wars, but also like, you know, dicks. And I was mm -hmm. like, that's a fun combination. And that was a big influence on everybody. But then it kind of evolved from there. And it was less like, oh, I want to be Kevin Smith Nuge. And it was more like, oh, well, that fat, awkward guy was able to write shit and got successful. So there's precedent now. So yeah. now I should try that. And, and you know, was writing and kind of got less earnest, heroic stuff, which was probably, you know, I think you turn 13 and you can't quite have the same level of like, ah, oh, this is a great thing. Like, you know, and, and, you know, that all kind of goes away. And then kind of finding that, like, funny subversive slice of life things learning like seeing like uh you know stuff like fast times at ridgemont high and and you know days and confused and a lot of like and getting into indie film was yeah. a real big thing for me i think for a lot of people they started on kevin smith and then that was just the end of indie film for them like yeah. they were just like and and he's it and i was just like tell me more about these people like uh, you know who, who are these john moosh and spike lee gentlemen you know right. and uh that opened up a whole different kind of humor because i think for a long time i was like comedy that's like you wear a fake nose and mustache and go yakety schmackety or whatever and i was like that's profoundly lame realizing all these other versions of comedy existed be kind of weird and subversive you know because so much of it was just like well if it makes the it's if it's down the line everybody likes it why would i enjoy it like you know that those right. people don't enjoy me so why would i make content for them and then it became like oh you know finding punk and finding diy and finding indie cinema and stuff like that all of a sudden it was like oh, I can say what I want and put it out there. And if somebody else identifies with it, you know, it comes back. Absolutely. You know, it's a different kind of game because it's not instant gratification. You know, it's, it's, you know, I say this and everybody tells me I'm great. It's like, no, you throw it out there. And then a couple months later, you know, you get a, a email or something from somebody who's like, I like your band or like, oh, I read that thing on fanfiction.net and it was pretty good. Like, yeah. you know, shit <laughs> like that. And a friend of mine and I would write, uh, these like like we call them movies but just that we were writing but they're all just handwritten he started it one day and then showed it to me and then i and we had a class together in sixth period every day and he showed me i was like oh this is kind of dope can i like take this and fuck with it tomorrow i don't know why i asked like it's his thing and then right. he was like okay and so i wrote two more pages of it and then the next day uh in sixth period handed it back to him and he took it the next day and eventually we had a whole system and we wrote like a whole movie i am so bummed because i'm sure that it exists somewhere in a box in storage in a manila folder and probably right. all the pages aren't there but we wrote like a full 
Quentin Tarantino crime comedy as two like 15 year old boys handwritten back and forth in a big fucking file right. to like give back and forth about like a guy who is sad uh, and, and just got broken up with. And then his brother is wanted by the mob. So them and this like hooker lady end up all like teaming up as a threesome, like, like a trio to like get away from the mob. And it's got all these twists and turns and like action scenes and shit like that. That's awesome. Uh, and then like the big, our big finish was like the brother. Cause we're like, he's got to pay. Something's got to happen. Cause he did fuck up. And like, you can't just like get away with it. So when like a mobster crushes one of his balls with a hammer. And like, I remember having distinct memory of like, it was like fourth period. And my friend walked over to me and cause we had talked about, that was it. We had a class at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And so the yeah. middle of the day was writing time. The beginning was planning out what we're going to do today and then review all all our work on at six period. And uh, I was clearly a committed student. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and and he he brought it to me like second period. He passed by me and he handed me the folder. It was like, fine, you fucking do it. Because yeah. I proposed that as the as one of the many ways. They're like, well, we can cut off his hand. We're like, oh, it's kind of like Reservoir Dogs or like something like like you don't want to like rip off like a Tarantino thing. We want to do something original. And and that was what we kind of landed to when he got to writing the line in the scene description, you know, the stage action. And he handed me the folder and goes, all right, if you think it's such a good idea, you get to write it. And, right. and handed it to me. So I had to go write uh, uh, the mobster returns in and uh, before whatever's able to adjust, like he smashes his testicle. <laughs> I love it. The Thank time you. I got to college, I was the first time I was like, oh, I might, I guess I'm like a funny guy and that there's not other funny people here. Because he was like, oh, you're funny. And I was like, what? Don't you mean handsome or fun or cool? And they're like, nope, funny. I know what I said. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I was almost kind of like mad at it. Like, like yeah. he's funny was sort of the way of saying like, oh, he's funny. You know, gross, but humorous. Uh, right. Or, you know, whatever. And I know that so, feeling as well. Yeah. We all end up comedians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, by my senior year, I or junior year, I was almost like ready to graduate early. So I ended up taking on a set, uh, a minor in film just to like keep keep this college thing going for a while. So started taking film classes, and one of the classes I just happened to take was a class called comedy writing. And I was like, sure, I enjoy comedy and writing. Uh, had never really thought of them as a combo. And the final was you went and did five minutes of stand up at the Ice House at the end of the semester, okay. uh, which is a club here in LA, like a real old comedy club. Yeah. And then I got invited back. Uh, and I had no idea what I was doing. I, I like, didn't know how stand-up worked. I knew, like, Dave Chappelle, and I knew, like, Dave Attell. Right. And I knew, like, All a very specific subset of com <laughs> comedians. Yeah. Like, uh, my big performance influences were things like, like, Henry Rollins' spoken word was a huge thing for me. Right, yeah. Uh, or, like, uh, John Leguizamo's Freak. Like, yes. shit like that was, like, yeah. the kind of version of comedy. Or, like, like Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer was, like, a thing okay. I thought was real cool. Like, so I did not have hip comedy. Like, the first time I heard Patton Oswalt was in that class. Really? I was like, the fuck's this guy? Fuck him. <laughs> oh, uh, my gosh. And, and then eventually, like, one, one, then I did it, but I was still playing music at the time. So I was like, whatever, comedy's all well and great, but I'm going to focus on my, I'm going to rock forever. <laughs> yeah. Forever was another seven weeks. Uh, and then you know, the band fell apart, and I kept getting invited back to club to do more stand-up-y stuff because I was this kind of like young unknown that they kind of liked the cut of his jib and I did a lot of stuff without taking any of it seriously and then kind of fell off of it a little bit and then had two or three like weird shitty things happen in rapid succession and was just like oh I think maybe I'll just go do this other thing then and really like when I was about I don't know 23 because the first time I'd done stand-up was at 21. And then by like 23, after doing it kind of off and on for two years, was like, okay, like, I guess now we're going to throw down and, and I'm going to do this like willingly. And yeah. then not only had to like 
you know, I had had so much beginner's luck because I just wasn't thinking about it. You know how it's almost that like, you know, you play better when you're not thinking than when you're really trying. Right. Uh, and, and then it flipped into like, well, now I'm really trying. So now I'm terrible at this, but I'm not like terrible, terrible. And I did get lucky because I did not know how open mics work. I knew how open mics worked for music and for poetry because I was a failed musician who had wanted to be a poet in college. So I'd yeah. done both of those things. And I'd seen comedians at those sometimes and they were always shitty. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Is, if I'm half as shitty as those guys, I'll still be fine. They got laughs and they were the worst thing I've ever seen. And right. I found a mic in my town and was like, hey, I'm a comedian. Can I do jokes at your mic? And the guy was like, you're our only one, but sure, it changes pace up. And he's like, all right, comedians, you know, musicians get three songs, so I guess I'll give you 12 minutes, which looking wow. back, I'm like, that's insane. Yeah, it is. So for a year, once I started taking it seriously, I had a once a week spot in front of a civilian music crowd where I could do 12 new minutes every week. So I got to be really shitty fast. <laughs> I had to like burn years worth of shittiness in a very like compressed time. And after a year of doing that, and then I was in grad school at that time too. So I was waking up at five in the morning, teaching in South Central Los Angeles, going to USC for grad school, and then coming home Tuesday nights doing that open mic. And I was doing that Monday to Friday. And then Saturday, I would do all my, and it's Sunday, I would do all my paper writing for grad school, but I would get done about four o'clock on Saturdays. And then I would shower after writing papers all day. And I would drive to Hollywood and there was like three mics on Sunset Boulevard across from where Meltdown was, but wasn't a theater yet. Right. And you could do those three mics over the course of like basically from like seven to the was when the first one started and you could hit that and then go down and hit this other one. And then there was a mic that started at 1230 at night and went to 430 in the morning. And that wasn't even a mic. It was like a show. But if you hung out, you could usually get a spot host would like hook up spots occasionally or like. If the host didn't know me, like, or if somebody who did know me was hosting, he'd throw me up. And that's where I met a lot of comedians I would go on to, like, see other places. That's where I met Ed Greer. That's where I met Jamar Neighbors. That's where I met, like, Paul Palmieri, who's, like, out of the game. But I always think it was my comedy big brother because he's the guy who taught me how to do open bikes. Yeah. You know, Nick Petrillo, Christine Madrano, all these people who, like, have gone on to do a lot of cool stuff. And I always kind of think of them as, like, those were the cool kids when I was a baby. Um, But basically I'd be out from like seven to four 30 in the morning from Saturday night through Sunday and then sleep till noon, finish my papers, then repeat the process again. And that was, that was a year of my, you know, 13 months of my life was just doing that every week. And then literally I finished grad school and the weekend before, like, and I, I finished grad school and there was a week before you graduated for grad school and uh, the nerd melt theater just opened then. And I was terrified of going because I had been around most like club and road doggy kind of comedians had, had not really experienced the alt scene at all. And had always been kind of told, oh, they're mean. Yeah. Uh, so I was terrified. And so then I went and had like a full tilt panic attack before the first time I went to the Matt Myers day off open mic because I was like, everyone's going to be mean. And I've been working so hard on this for so many years. They're going to be dicks about it. And then went and actually did really well. Went back the next week and and got up and also did all right. Not as good as the first time, but uh, oh, and that first one was crazy because like uh, half the show got bumped because like Hardwick showed up and did 20 minutes in the middle of the thing. Because before anybody understood how the theater was going to work, there was no laws. There was no staff. Everyone was just making shit up as they went along. But right. so originally half the list was going to get bumped. But then a bunch of people bailed and me and a couple. Of, and it's weird because, again, I look at it. It was like the people who ended up going up were like me, Ahmed Barucha, Rhino Flanagan, Paige Weldon, like all these people who would go wow. on to be all these amazing comedians like, you know had gone up and so that was like this kind of and I, after the second time I went up I remember talking to whoever was in charge in the theater at the time I was like hey do you guys need like people's cars washed or anything like do you guys need help here and they're like oh we're 
kind of looking for interns still for the theater. Like, well, I'll put you in. And they put me in touch with Emily Gordon. And I, I had to miss, I forget what event it was, but like, I, I, oh, that's what it was. I had missed the first open my, Matt Myers day off because I was busy graduating from USC wow. for my master's degree. <laughs> and I was kind of pissy about it because I would wanted to do open mics more than I wanted to get my degree from grad school. <laughs> right. uh, and then, and I remember like very distinctly like being, being all bummer about it. Like, cause I'm like, oh, I'm missing the thing. And like my girlfriend who's also in this grad school program was like, could you be excited for a second? I was like, Fine. And then my parents were like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to go to Bubba Gump's city walk. That'll cheer me up. <laughs> Uh, that's such so a Kyle then, uh, Clark thing to want to do after graduation oh, yeah. and then started working <laughs> at, at Meltdown and then and then it was just kind of a crazy run from there but yeah this, like comedy was just an elaborate series of, of good or bad timing you know and and weird shit that doesn't exist anymore like it's I feel weird sometimes when it's like hard for me to give advice I'm like the key is you just got to be in the exact right time for several things that are totally separate from each other right it's kind of insane man I mean as far as myself like I started I want to say I didn't start stand up until maybe two weeks after I met you. So oh, like, really? yeah. So like, like met met. Yeah, like like when we met met in oh, in okay, Los not Angeles. When I saw your shocked face on Twitter after the shout out for your band. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> We're like a couple that have two anniversaries. <laughs> yes, we do. Which I mean, to this day, <laughs> I still I still talk about how like. It it really is almost exactly what you're talking about, where it's just like right place, right time kind of thing, because like I loved Meltdown, like nobody's business. And I was there all the time. And uh, you were you were the the head of the open mic at that time, you know, so I want to say I went I went on maybe once or twice. And because of that, I got in with like you know, Matt Bennett and that whole crowd. And then Matt out of nowhere was like, Hey man, somebody dropped this show as your show. You want to be on that show? And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like, it, it was just like a series of, of events really. Like I got a lot of things before I should have, you know what I mean? God bless Matt Bennett. I love that man. I love that dude. Like nobody's business. I still tell everybody like if it weren't for Kyle Clark and for Matt Bennett, I would have had literally nothing in Los Angeles. <laughs> like, He's one of those guys who I often have to be careful if I see him because, and I think he's said this just like, we'll get sucked into music bullshit conversations that oh, are, yeah. cause he's such a music guy yeah. and, and such a like nerd for details and stuff in a way that like, I know a lot of people who love stuff, but occasionally you meet somebody who is like a kindred spirit as far as like really going deep on stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of fun when I talk to Matt because he is another like music guy who's like, it's not just the like, oh yeah, the music's great, or I really like that lyric. It's like, yeah, no, and I think all the time about how in like 1985 they did that weird EP session, and I wonder like sometimes like what had happened if they had originally had like this person show up to produce it instead of having to like go over to this thing. But if they don't do that, then Touch and Go never hears those demo like those right. kind of levels of like where you're just like, oh man, I no no, I swear to God, I I understand the touch of another human being. <laughs> yes, that dude's awesome. So here's another thing I wanted to ask you. You've been doing comedy for so long you definitely have had hell gigs oh yeah so let's 11 years in it's just been all it's been good the whole time it's <laughs> yeah, crazy. let's just talk about let's talk about hell gigs for a minute <laughs> uh i mean i can give you i like hell gigs to a certain extent sure like i feel like i actively seek out challenges like mm -hmm. i kind i uh w once i kind of was was went from like okay like i love stand up and this is who i am now like like once i kind of hit that couple of years of experience under my belt where you just want to do it all and, and you're obsessed with it and all that kind of stuff when i started trying to kind of refine from like okay like 
I'm okay now. Like, what can I do to grow? Because I kind of hit like a plateau a little bit. Yeah. And I kind of looked around and I looked at like, who were the comedians, not the famous ones, but like, who are like the comedians around that I like and think are interesting? And like, why do I like what they do? And like, why do I think it's interesting? And you know, uh, you know, it was, was a fun exercise to do. And I kind of came up with like a very specific set of, of comedians that I, that I found that I like, cause it wasn't just that I think they're funny. Cause yeah. there's like a million comedians. I think you're funny, but like when you're looking for somebody where it's like, I want to do something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Um, and I think like, especially then, cause so many people were kind of, it was the height of like hacky uh, alt comedians where it's just like, Hey, this unicorn told me that this one TV show or rap lyric is like kind of weird. If you think about it, like there was a <laughs> lot of that going on. I was like, Oh, I hate this. I hate this with all of my heart. Right. And I was like, well, who do I like what they do? And like the three, you know, three of the comedians that I really looked at who were like peers, but that I also like admired a lot. Uh, and they were uh, Jesse Case, Ed Greer, and Wendy Starlin. And again, none of the three of them are like famous comedians. I still maintain I think they're three of the greatest comedians I've ever seen. You know, Wendy is always kind of my default answer for favorite comedian. And yeah. Ed could be the exact same way or Jesse. Famous comedian Jerome K, but like you should probably go watch Ed Greer. Ed's but, great, uh, actually. I love Ed. Ed Greer has my favorite moment in the history of comedy. Of my, me watching a performer on stage is like, and it actually ties into all this. But basically I learned, found that all three of them went to this very specific bar. It's actually in I Am Comet called the Liquid Zoo. Okay. And the Liquid Zoo is run by, uh, on Wednesday nights is run by a guy named Ron Swallow. And and Ron Swallow is a, is one of my favorite human beings. He's on Bradland Records. He's going to do a double album at some point here. Yes. And it's going to be the fact that like I, the you know, first double album I'll ever get to release is a Ron Swallow double album. Debut <laughs> double album makes me so happy because he is truly one of my favorite people on earth. But, That's like, great. And that mic went from like 7 p.m. to last call. And I had gone years ago and had realized that I had got there at seven, but people had already signed up early. And so I didn't go on until like 10 PM. And I was like, what a colossal waste of time. Fuck all of this. Right. And then somebody was like, Oh, well you message him and you can like get, a, if you get a later spot, like just message him and you can show up later. Cause he'll have that way. He gets the early people up early. And then as the late people show up, you know, it's kind of a system. And uh, so I, I, and I was so nervous to do it because like I, he doesn't know me. Like, why would he do me any solids? And I was like, hey, could I get a spot around midnight, maybe? Like, and he was like, yeah, all right. And I showed up and I found that like around midnight, a lot of like really good road dog comics would show up to this mic. You know, like yeah. Augie Smith would show up. I definitely saw Jackie Cation there, you know, at least once, you know, oh, yeah. a lot of. You know, just real like that, that kind of like those people who are just like, like comedy ass comedian. And it was fun to like see all these people, like, you know, some people who have TV credits, people who can headline and their workshop and stuff here. And the, that, that might give you seven minutes, which is an eternity in LA open mics because most of them in LMX are three to five minutes. Mm -hmm. So like seven is like almost a full set you can practice. So I did it and I uh, ate shit uh even late and but like it was a different kind of eat shit like right. than many other mics where like i ate shit because i did a bad job not because i was nervous because i was scared of the crowd because i was worried because there's like you know pimps at this bar and yeah. there are uh you know possible you know people who are dangerous and like like it is not it's not a comedy bar it is a bar of transients that comedians have been allowed to hang out in because they're like amused by the comedy and sometimes they're amused by it because they terrify comedians on stage uh <laughs> And so it's, it is maybe one of the most inhospitable rooms to be a timid comedian in or a comedian who does not have a good sense of who they are or what they're doing on stage. Right. You know, if, if you're somebody who's like, 
what else do I want to talk about? Or like, or checking your notes, like, oh, like I saw this on TV. Like you're just going to get booed and not listened to. And like, or somebody's going to be like, what? Like, you know, exactly, and, yeah. and, and the, 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 the buzz you got off, it was like a little different. It was not, oh, I did shitty. It was like, fuck them. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this. And for the next three years, I would go every Wednesday night, after midnight to this bar in a not great part of the valley and and get up there and work on stuff and not only work on stuff but get to watch ed and jesse and wendy and and augie and all these amazing people uh do their act and not only do their act but fucking slay slay at late at night full of a bunch of insane people and and not only slay but slay not doing easy gross or hacky things which would play but like would be bringing artistry to it on top of bringing that and like watching ed do bits about red dead redemption in a room full of people who like if he if he had walked and said i like video games you know like a like an alt comedian would have been murdered right instead like ed is getting to make like deep cut fucking x-men jokes in a room full of like crazy people and and they're playing because he's figured out how to present that information in a way that makes these maniacs understand emotionally what he's saying that's maybe that's where i learned to be funny and that's where i learned to like you know get into and really and then from there like started taking weird gigs on the road especially like stuff with like keep carry and shit like that where it's like oh there's a stabby bar in the middle of the central valley yeah we'll be there uh you know <laughs> uh and and you know and along those times like also like going out to orange county and making friends with those people that like this weird combination of orange county and that fucking bar you know, and a couple other locations are like the way that I got it. And then when Mendy moved to New York, I kind of inherited the like last call spot, like yeah. 145 at night. Like, and, and you're going to walk up there. You're going to be the last comedian of the thing. The bar is not empty because it's still like a crazy gnarly bar. And, and there's still comedians. there, kind of watching good comedians do sets because it was an interesting thing to watch. And like a year of every week, you know, taking that spot and just like going up in the most inhospitable environment and learning how to be good in that really prepared me for bad rooms. And like to this day, I still love like a, a tough room. All that's all to this, say this. I did find a nemesis once though. And I okay. do have like a firm answer for the worst show I've ever done. Please the irony tell it me. It was a book show Ron Swallow put me on. Uh and and so it's always funny because like like it's it's looking at every part of the gig. I, I, I still don't know what, like, I could not have done anything differently that night besides just, like, I just walked into my own death in, a, like, <laughs> in, like, a dimension where, like, there is no alternate sliding doors version. Like, I just fail at this a thousand <laughs> times over. Yeah. It was at the short-lived John Lovett's Comedy Club at City, oh, Universal yeah. City Walk at in City Los Walk. Angeles. <laughs> so already I'm always heartbroken because it's one of my favorite, like, City Walk is one of my favorite places on Earth. Like, yeah. I genuinely and non-ironically love it. Some ironic, but, like, 90% non-ironic love. <laughs> right. Uh, and and I love walking around there. I was excited to be there. So I'm doing a gig at my favorite place in the world. This is going to be awesome. And it's me and it's Ron hosting. And then it's uh, Joe Starr, who did a lot of uh, writing for a lot of, like, nerd comedy stuff. And uh, Connor McSpadden, the, yeah. the beloved boy king of comedy. And then the headliner was a woman whose name I forget, but she was one of Ralphie Mae's openers. And she was insane. She was so good. We walk on uh, for this show. Uh, I am going to be the first comedian on no that's right ron wasn't hosting i was hosting that's what it was okay ron brought me up and then ron was on and then and then joe and then connor and then joe ron and this lady i hate that i forget her name because she was so fun but like i walk out and it is christmas time 
and it's not particularly full. That venue was insane. It was three floors high. It was supposed to be, it used to yeah. be a BB King's Blues Club, but then exactly. evolved into a comedy venue. Yeah. It was mostly doing like Adam Kroll and Kevin Smith podcast. And the green room is basically the third floor where you can look over on a balcony and watch a show. And the audience is basically on the first floor. And then the second floor was like podcasting shit. I went out. The only people there is basically it has been uh, pseudo booked out for a firefighter's holiday party. Oh, and gosh. I walk out. So it's a bunch of firefighters and their wives. And I have the week before this gig done my second time doing Meltdown with, with Joan and Kamel. And yeah. it was up to that point and for many years afterwards like the best set i ever had doing anything anywhere ever like it's the most happy i had been with anything in my life yeah. um and i'm like cool at least i know the material is gonna work i was running a weekly show during that time so i was i was kind of like a stand-up machine i was pretty confident things were gonna go well and uh, and i'm excited because like joe Starr's a real sweet guy ron's one of my favorite people and connor i met when he was 17 in an open mic in orange county like when he was first starting and so i in my mind he's still like that that funny you know, that, that little high school kid's going to get his shit together. Right. And I, unbeknownst to me, in the time since I've last seen Connor, he has morphed into one of the funniest human beings who will ever live. Yeah. And I'm not fully aware of how true this is. I already knew he was funny. I did not know that he knew how funny he was at that point. And I learned very quickly because I went on stage and I bombed my face off. Yeah. I, I bombed. Like, I look back and just go, like, God, statistically, something should have gone right by accident. <laughs> Like, 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 and it went from like, oh, this is going bad to like, oh, now they willfully hate me. So like, I'm, I'm digging even apart. And I tried to like crowd work them back and make fun of myself. And like, when I did a self-depreciating joke, they didn't laugh. They just thought like, well, at least he knows he's shitty. Oh like, my gosh. Just, just, it was like, like I, I have that, that is probably one of the most like where are my legs? Oh, there goes gravity kind of moments I've <laughs> yeah. ever had. Like, it was crazy. Oh and then gosh. I'm hosting, which means every time a comedian comes on, I have to come back out and continue <laughs> having them hate me. And I very distinctly remember, uh, must have been Joe went first. And, and even like I brought him up and he kind of shook my hand. He was like, it was like, I was like, they're tough. And he was like, and then Joe did fine. Great set. And then I'm standing upstairs and Connor <laughs> turns to me and goes, hey, are you going to do more stories before you bring me up? Because I've got credits I'd like you to give. Oh, and it's no. funny because for years, Connor referred to my bit as my act as stories. Like, they're not <laughs> jokes. They're stories. Because <laughs> jokes, jokes have punchlines and I have stories. And I was like, fuck, I hate how right he is because it's so mean, but it's also, like, completely correct. But I remember after every comedian, they'd do well, and I'd come back on trying to, like, coast on the goodwill. Like, you've hosted before. You know how, like, when somebody has a great set, when you're a host, you just fly in and catch some of those, like, yeah. crumbs. Like, yes. <laughs> And uh, I would do that. And literally they would shut down. Like they were willfully just like, not for you. These laughs are not for you. Do not confuse and think we like you for a second. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, just, just proceeded. To, and, and literally like after the show, I was like having a spiral for the record. I went back that same night and drowned my sorrows in more Bubba Gumpin City. Walk. Yeah, that sounds it about right. a lot of life stories. For me. <laughs> that sounds uh, about right. <laughs> but, uh, and it was funny because our, our host, our, our, our like waiter at the thing was another comedian uh, who, uh, this guy, Mikey McKernan, who run, used to run a great show called Turbo Tuesday. So I knew really well. And he was like, oh, you just did the thing. How was it? I'm like, maybe the worst set I've ever had. He's like, that can't be my Sit down for a minute. Let me tell you how. And by the end, he was like, oh, that was bad. Like, that sounds awful. Man. And like, Ron was even like, after the show, he was like, hey, man, like, I, you know, I love you, man. I don't, I don't judge it. I don't, I've never seen anything quite like what you said. <laughs> so, yeah, so that it's funny to me. You know, I've, I've done so many gigs in the middle of nowhere. I've, I've done, 
know, I, I did a show with Keith in the middle of the Central Valley where people were actively messed out having sex in the room while we were trying to do stand up. Wow. And I still don't think of it as bad as that fucking John Lovitz comedy club show. Because <laughs> you know what? I got a laugh or two. I actually did okay when the crowd were having sex. Like it was just by that point, it's just like it's just colored the room. Like, right. It's, it's, I've never 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 experienced anything like that it was it was bananas oh my gosh yeah i i think i i have something similar to that when you were telling that story it reminded me of a time when i hosted at the improv and it was very similar where like the headliner was a a lebanese comedian his name's nimmer and he um he's extremely huge you know um and so he like filled out this room and so i was like oh my gosh this is gonna be great this is gonna be a sold out show this kind of stuff so i went out and i did my material as a host and you know you know me i'm a very i'm a very happy-go-lucky kind of a person and these people were just like why are you smiling we don't like you you know like that kind of thing and it was just like oh man i i yeah, a lot of a lot of those same vibes were like, you know, the comedian after me did destroyed as well. And then I would try to get some of those laughs and it was like, no, this isn't for you, dude. Yeah, like this, it's, it's interesting. Like sometimes crowds are just like, we hate you. Yeah, like. it was so weird, man. Like I had there was a point in the mic in, in the my set where I was telling a joke and in my head I was saying why am I hearing someone order chicken fingers over my own stand-up right now? <laughs> like, like literally, they were so... Everyone was so loud ordering chicken fingers or, like, doing their own thing. It was just a complete weird type of thing. But that's that's the thing. Honestly, man, like, the good silver lining in comedy, and one of the reasons why I love it is because it is something that will always keep you humble. That is just... Oh, yeah. Like, comedy what will a- just always do that. For you. The, some of the most profoundly inspiring things in comedy that get, kept me going when things get dark is when I watch like one of my heroes just like shit the bed for ten minutes. Yeah, like, I've seen, I've seen. I, I'm not gonna, I won't name names because that seems like a like shitty thing to do. But like, I've really watched a couple of people who, in my mind, are like the greatest comedians who have ever lived, or like in that conversation, Absolutely. just like fucking fail like yeah. and not even like a, oh like that one didn't land but they got it like like from bottom to top at no point did the set pick up like it did no point that they steer like the, the plane lost altitude and crashed and everyone died and it yeah. was a real like i was like all right well if they had that set then i don't have to be near as upset because about like when i have bad sets because i'm nowhere near as talented as them they can't save the plane like there's no reason for me to think that sometimes uh, that i have to i'm gonna not even that i have to but that i'm able to save them it's a very I, i've been watching entirely too much star trek so everything is through <laughs> a star trek filter for me right now but it's right. it's really that like no fear or, like understanding fear kobe Maru, like you can't win every time kind of thing that I find so interesting because it's such a thing to learn in stand-up and you meet those like either young or shitty like comedians who are like I never bomb and it's like okay then you just don't know that you're when you're bombing like yeah absolutely yeah absolutely the problem with like a sub you know art being subjective is like if everybody fully agrees on something it's probably not wildly interesting and and I'm not saying like like we're both too hot for tv sometimes like I don't think my act's like 
that wild or crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it is, but it's sometimes people are just not, don't want what you're selling. Exactly. Yeah. That makes plenty of sense. In fact, you know, it, you ever have faces in your head of like a person you've seen who like you are starting a bit or you're like the worst when you're midway through a bit and you catch somebody's face who's just having a terrible time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did a show in Atlanta at a rooftop wine bar, a late night rooftop wine bar. And it was mostly like comedians who should have been on that show. And I got like thrown on because they're like, hey, we got some open spots. And I'm like, I'll literally go anywhere you say anytime. Right. And went and did the show. And like sometimes you like decide, make a decision. And then after the fact, you're like that was the bad decision. I should have picked the other decision because I was like, I had been leaning into different bits and there was a bit I was working on that I hadn't done a ton at this, like that run of shows. So I was like, oh, I'm going to pull out because it's the, the bit on my last album about, about people in my family losing fingers. Yeah. You know, a bunch of members of my family who are missing fingers. And I have like a kind of 10 minute chunk on it. And this is this 10 minute set. And I was like, you know, I've been leaning into the other stuff. I think I'm going to do the fingers thing. And so I went into this very nice, downtown rooftop wine bar in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta with a bunch of very well-dressed wine sipping nice people uh, oh, and went and talked about my family and their missing appendages and I will always just have the vision of this woman with a big glass of white wine staring at me with like just abject horror just just not enjoying it but mostly just like someone silenced this awful man oh, my <laughs> and gosh. like the set was okay like people people had a good time on the whole but I will always have, like, in my head a very specific memory of, like, this one particular woman who was, like, because everybody else is doing bits that, like, match the venue and the kind of crowd and shit like that. And I was like, whatever, man, I'm going to go against the grain. And that was a terrible call. <laughs> man. Man, I, that's that's happening. you have a bit well, that yeah. you, like, are like, I shouldn't do this here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Almost every time I do my Full House bit anywhere in Miami <laughs> because none of these people watch Full House. And I'm like, I don't care. I, if, if, it is funny that you're a Miami comedian at this point. And, and again, many, I know I, I have this weird theory that like Florida secretly has the best comedians come out of it. Cause like, you know, Lisa Best, Wendy Starling, like there's so many like really, you know, Paul Lair, like all these people who come out of there who are so fucking funny. Yeah. And, and, but it is just so funny because I'm just like, I can't think of somebody who like should not be like in a white suit. Like in my mind, all of Miami is just a uh, Will Smith's Miami music video. Sure. <laughs> yes. So I just imagine you in like a lot of white suits on speedboats is how you get to venues. Cause I just <laughs> the busing system there. It's almost, it's almost exactly how it is here. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, I yeah, man. Mary's it's, a little chihuahua and a sash. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good theory to have. I think I think I have that theory as well that a lot of usually end up being a little stronger because well, you're coming into such a hostile territory. Exactly, every gig is a hell gig until proven otherwise. Exactly, it, it is literally not a good gig until you make it one. <laughs> like that's it in, in florida so fucking bad it's weird the places i want to go at this point it's right like philadelphia and like florida <laughs> i mean if you come here i would love to see you dude you have a place to stay you can come like, whenever oh, you want i'll make it out there i mean the, the 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 people of philadelphia are maybe the only city that is, has like asked me to come and i still made it out there so i feel like i still got to get there for oh, yeah. like their priority but like florida is like it, it'll end up being a hat trick where i'll have to figure out how to like do horror nights on like a thursday and then book like a friday saturday and then yes. fly back sunday and just then no one's the wiser right so here's another thing and you kind of touched on it a little bit but i want to talk about like the best of the best sets like give me some good times where you've been on stage i don't, I don't know that i keep track of those quite the same way 
Really? I mean, I have like, I'm trying to think like the best way to explain this. I'm not a real like, I got a win guy. Yeah. Because uh, I lost at everything as a kid. I was bad at everything as a kid. I was on a basketball team once that won, that won zero games in a season. And wow. it's funny, like, I love it because, like, my greatest moment of athletic prowess was I scored 20 points in a youth basketball game in one game once uh, and was, like, top scorer. And we still lost the game, and it was the season where we never won a game. So it was a real, like, oh I had a real, like set of, like, vision. for like it's, So I'm not, like, competitive in the, like, I got to win or this has got to be the best kind of way. I'm a lot more of a, like, did I get what I went into that set trying to accomplish done? Yeah. You know, and so a lot of sets, it's like I, I walk up and it's like, did I do the jokes the way I wanted to do them? Did they get the reaction? Did I tell them the best that I could tell them and stuff like that? And that kind of refine. It's part of why I like stand up is that it's a very like, there's no score. Yeah. You know? so, but at the same time, like I have, you know, like all three album tapings I'm very proud of. I think all three album taping shows I've done because I've done one and dones for all three albums because like, uh, you know, if you're going to gamble, gamble with something that your livelihood depends on lightly. Right. Um, but, uh, and I, so I think like, especially like pizza night was very scary, but like the stakes were low enough that it didn't matter to anybody really, but me. And really like I had a lot of people who I think were also interested in the idea of making a record. So the fact that somebody they knew was doing it without, any help did you record any... pizza night at meltdown no i recorded pizza night at a place called Dangerfield threes that was okay. a comedian had turned part of their house into a comedy venue and the pizza night record is actually the rehearsal show is it then okay. I, I did the actual show at a place called the dial that was like a diy punk venue and no one came wow uh, so i was so lucky that we had taped the rehearsal but it also kind of was why I was like the one and done. Like yeah. I was like, oh, I set this up for two and one was a waste of time. So why don't I just get it right the first time? And by the second round, I, you know, the second one, I, there was a series of shows in Meltdown called An Evening With. And they would do, you know, an evening with a comedian where they would do a long set and they would book a couple of their people they liked as openers. So yep. like they had done like an evening with Ron Funches or like a evening with Best Stelling and shit like that. And the people who produced it were like, hey, would you want to do one of these? And I was like, I'd be honored. And then I kind of called him back and was like, hey, I was thinking of recording an album, Mel, do you want to just like make it a double and make it an evening with Kyle Clark and make it also an album taping for this record? And I then I like thought out the house so that it could be free, so that it was easy to pack out. And and were you, you weren't there. Were you? I was there, yeah. You weren't for I'm a person, okay. God, that record feels like a thousand years ago now. So I've, like, I've lost all, the last five years, I'll just feel like a weird jumbled mess of time. So, and, and that album kind of happened because like I had, you know, lost a manager and, and all the kind of like early stuff I was doing to try to like take a career a certain way had kind of fallen off. And I was kind of just like out of things to do. And I was like, I think I got to do this one. Cause I did the last one was like to learn. And this one is like a for real. Yeah. And, and so put it, so did it. And like, I was, I was got complicated feelings about that night for a lot of reasons, but overall I was very happy with how it went. But I also felt really weird about it. And so, like, that's why that record took so long to come out. Like, I recorded it in December of 2015. It came out in on a Halloween 2016. And so, yeah, I had to kind of work through a lot with it. So, you know, it was like a kind of a weird, bittersweet thing. Uh, and then, you know, this last one I was really proud of. But again, it was like, this last one was so much more of like a catharsis. Because now it's like, okay, we're traveling for it. My family's in tow it's going to be part of this label I'm starting. Like there was all these like things to it that weren't just like do a good job. Like I was like, uh, by that point I'd been doing enough stand up to feel pretty good about it. It was a little scary going in just cause there was, there was a, you know, a lot of drama in my life and stuff like that. But ultimately it came down to like, okay, we'll just see what happens. 
you know, as far as like things I look back, like the first meltdown set is like one of a very limited run of sets that I really think about with any kind of concrete clarity as being like a good thing. And it wasn't even like, Oh, it was great. Like I did, I did well, like, you know, it was, but, but, uh, I had never wanted anything more than I wanted to do that set. And so like I, for the month before it literally just like, it was just total war, full effort. Like everything I was doing was in some way, shape or form, helping me make that set a better set. You know, every time I went to work, I'm running the set in my head. I'm, I'm running the things I'm writing shit down. I'm going to mics and doing everything I can. Cause it's like, this is all that matters. Yeah. And then did it. And then it was like this weird thing of like, I was so happy, but then it's also funny. Cause that shows on a Wednesday. So Thursday I'm back up and I'm back to work the next day. And you know, it's like, nobody is signing you to a deal. Nobody is going like, well, now you're part of our team and we have secret breakfast where you get to, you know, hang out with all the cool kids. It's just <laughs> right. like, Oh, and, and it's, it was even funny. Cause I was like, I tried to explain to him like, no guys, it was really neat. Like I did a show last night. I'm like, Oh cool. You did another show. I'm like, no, this was like a different one. Like guys, I got to meet Dana Gould and Brian Posehn last night and they don't know who those people are. Right. You know, and I remember like that was the biggest, scariest part of it was like walking, you know, doing the show and like Dana Gould does a drop in, which everybody else is like, cool, funny man, tells jokes. We're here for it. And for me, I'm like, fuck me. Like one of the three or four like comedians who I really respect and admire and want to like kind of model some of my career at the time after is like all of a sudden there, I'm like, fuck comedy uncle can't show up unannounced. Like this is weird now. You know? Yeah, man. And the fact that like, he saw it and was like, oh, you're funny. Like, good job. And I was just like, oh, cool. Like, uh, cool. I'm not going to puke now. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and- that that happened to me at Meltdown, man. I mean, not to not to make you feel weird or anything, but like, I remember doing a set and you pulling me aside and being like, hey, man, I'm really proud of you. And that was a huge moment for me. Aww. You know what I mean? Like, it was a really huge moment for me because like, I really enjoy you just as a person, as a comedian. And those kind of things would happen all the time, man. I remember I, I went to I went to one of Matt's shows and like Pete Holmes would drop in and like Dana Gould or Jackie Cation or any of these people. I mean, name anyone and they would drop in. And it was like it was one of the reasons why Meltdown was my favorite place. Because I was it's like, also funny how sometimes people like that become lucky charms for you. Is there any like comedian who whether they know it or not is like a lucky charm for you? That they're on a show or if they're at a thing you're just like okay i'm gonna stick around for a minute because good things happen when this person's here as far as like when they perform it's gonna be a good show no more like when you're on a show with them or if you're at a thing and you see them there like here, i'll explain like steve ag has been a good luck charm for me in the past okay. i've had very important events in my life that like went well and steve ag was at them and so i just associate him with like as like he's he's my version of like the waving china cat yeah <laughs> And like Baron Bond's a similar one where like I've never had a bad show experience if like Baron Bond is attached to the show. He's like in my mind, he's like a real sign of like quality assurance. You were my good luck charm when I was in L.A., you know, and I've I've already said it where it's just like I if it weren't for you or Matt Bennett, like I would have had nothing or no one. I actually considered you like you and Matt like very very close friends whether you realized it or not you know it was just like one of those things where like these are the people that i care about and these you know i i care about if they think i'm funny and like Aww. you know all You're these guys root of- for well thanks man um You're weirdo with a lust for life i'm invested in the success of this <laughs> fair enough yeah <laughs> Yeah. So that's probably the closest when it comes to Los Angeles. But here, I'm not sure. I think honestly, I think my good luck charm here would probably be Luis Diaz, which he's okay. he's an amazing comedian from down here. He has 
a a show at the improv that he always lets me perform on even though i shouldn't be on it every single time but he lets me be on it even i mean and you know this we're like even if a show isn't fully packed out, as long as 100% of the audience completely cares about what you're saying, I prefer that. It, it's a great show. And that's yeah. literally all of Lewis's shows are like that for me. So a any good crowd time, is better than a full crowd to me, except, yeah. you know, when it comes time to pay for gas. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I'm just going to ask you one last thing here, just because I've been talking to a lot of people during this whole quarantine thing. So the question i want to ask you is where is the first place you're gonna go once this whole thing is over god uh it's it's funny because like i think i've been thinking like we uh you know we just got the kind of extension and it looks like our fourth my fourth of july party's not gonna go this year because of quarantine stuff and oh, that man. was like it's funny because like that's you know i i've been on a real good run of like feeling pretty confident like i really was intense about like keeping myself structured you know and i'm showering and i'm shaving and i'm cleaning and i'm working and i'm doing stuff and like and having fun too i mean i beat resident Evil 3 it's great uh and and stuff like that but like that was the first real like thing that like pulled the wind out of my sails in a while and i feel like i've been doing a lot of talking people off the ledge and now i'm just like oh fuck that ledge we're gone everything's over it's all done uh right. i did not realize how much emotions i had hung on my my on fourth of july for the, those listening uh, I have a, a 4th of July party. I, I live just outside of Los Angeles. We have a nice yard with a pool and stuff like that. And for the last, fuck, like eight years, like we've thrown like a, a big rager 4th of July party and there's no stand-up show at it. There's no performance components, but it's almost, it's probably like, at this point, it's like 70% comedians because the, the musician rate has gone up. But it's, right. it's a lot of like, you know, writers and comedians and, and and not in any like intentional it's not some like french soiree salon like it's just like it's the people my brother and i know and so it's all mostly like comedy people or or you know musicians or like fun creative civilians and stuff like that yeah and what's nice about it is that you know there's no show element it's just a social event but it's such a raging social event there's so much to do at it like that it's the first time a lot of people who spend a lot of time around each other actually get to socialize. And like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love throwing a party, but my favorite part of a party is not like the raging craziness of it. It's I love being able to create an environment where people can a have fun, you know, and let go of all their bullshit. But then also like, I love when I get to introduce two people who I think are great to each other who have never met. Like my gold example is always the, the first one we ever threw. I got to introduce Rich Slayton who does a lot of, works in MMA and game announcing and all this crazy stuff. And it's just like, and is, is one of the filthier comedians I've ever met. And he's one of my favorite people. And I had interest in Melissa Curry, who was like, to me, like one of the funniest human beings alive and they had never met and like getting to introduce them and watch them talk for three hours and be silly. And I'm just like, this makes me happy. This is two people I love getting to meet and become friends. And for me, that's so much what's fun about the party. Like losing that really pulled the, so I, I, I think even after we're out until I'm able to like, get that back on its feet i'm never gonna feel quite right because i really do like like it's it's i've got like you know it's almost like half and half it's like half of my life is working towards halloween and then when halloween completes it is time to prepare for fourth of july and once fourth of july is done it's begin preparing for halloween i'm like those are my two anchor points of the year it's just like july and october right and so uh i will be sad about that uh and and you know and the other one will be like you know, what does this mean for haunt stuff? Because like, if I don't get haunt stuff, I'm not sure if we're in a world I want to live in. Yeah, um, of course. But like, so, you know, for me, it's very few, like I, I feel very grateful that I live a pretty 
small life anyways. So like, there's not a ton. The, the, my ultimate answer is my girlfriend's house, but I'm going to stop for a poke bowl along the way. Yeah. Because those are the only two things I really miss is poke bowls are the hardest things to kind of like order out. I'm still working on yeah. it. I'm figuring out. I'm making phone calls and brokering deals. And then I have not seen my girlfriend in person in, in a month. So, oh, wow. Uh, I oh want to uh, go go hang out with her and, and, and just give her a big hug. And then as I'm holding her behind her back, just fill my mouth with raw fish and rice. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite Poke Bowl place? There are two in town. Both are good. One is called Poke Stop, which I believe is some sort of a chain, possibly. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're fine. Uh, there's a place called Creation that does Poke Bowls, sushi burritos, and regular rolls. I'm pretty sure and I went there, little, yeah. That's a little closer to my house. And I enjoy Creation just because they have a few more options on stuff. Yeah. really, like, you know, I love the fish on it's great, but really, like, I'll just go ape shit on some veggies and I'll just, you know, my quote is always give me as much seaweed salad as you're legally allowed. Right. <laughs> um, and so, like, I don't know, it's just that combination. I think when I started eating healthier, I had to find new comfort foods because a few years ago I started, I, I hit the 30s and it was like, I need to be, you know, like, I, I'm in my 30s. Uh, I, I still would like to have kids. I need to be able to chase their asses around and be spry and not be, like, you know, crippled, unable to move dad by the time I have kids. So I was like, I got to start taking this shit a little more seriously and didn't do anything crazy. It's not like it's not like I'm some fitness guy. I mean, I, we can still rub guts like and, and have a grand <laughs> rainbow. will still shoot out Care Bear style. Um, but, you know, I had part of it for me was, OK, what are foods you like that are like healthy that you can turn into like something that you can like eat when you're sad or like or do as a celebration that isn't pizza and mac and cheese and make those more of like still around you know i ate mac and cheese literally earlier today yeah but like and and poke bowls were a thing i had never had i didn't know what they were thought they were a thing you catch pokemon with <laughs> and knew that would make you laugh you son of a bitch uh, <laughs> that fucking neo dad joke one of, <laughs> one of my favorite memories of all time is is a memory of you performing uh, at an open mic and there were like maybe six people in the audience and i laughed at one of your jokes and you just went uh that mike valdez giggle i love it oh you do you have a, <laughs> as someone with a, a uh, you know a branded laugh like i understand when i meet other people with branded laughs yeah because i'm still I'm like stay out of laugh town but uh <laughs> yeah uh, but you know occasionally like that's one of my favorite things like when you can hear a very specific person laugh at something yeah just like no it's like well i got them like, yeah and, and yours are like it's like all right i'm gonna throw this and this together and i bet up oh, there it is <laughs> i love it where can people find you kyle let's because uh, i'm hiding mean, under my desk sobbing what do, you have, uh, what, do you, <laughs> what do you have to promote i know you have i know you have this is rad yeah, I, sure, know you have, uh, I have a podcast called this is rad which we'll get you on in the next week or so here. i love it like, yeah because i'm doing the reach outs and stuff like that yeah it's, uh, uh i think you'll be the first like new guests since we've gone in quarantine oh really minute, I, I was just because like things are hard and so like part of my thought was like for the listeners you know it's like well, so many people that i have close connection with are also a lot of our heavy hitter favorites yeah so for like a month i was just like we're just gonna go almost every like event thing rad can do and we're just gonna do a month of it so we did a goods from the woods crossover we did a new D episode yep Oh, we had, we had uh, you know, Keith and Tom from the Mean Boys on. You know, mm-hmm. we're just doing this run. But I, and I was like, this is all well and good. I do have to remember how to book guests at some point. <laughs> Instead of just going, hey, all my friends, come be funny while we feel weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so this is rad. It's a podcast about positivity without being a fucking dork or a dick about it. Like, yeah. I find that so many positive thinking things uh, are, are condescending or dumb or bad. Uh, but I also try to be a positive person. And I saw so many podcasts that were just like, that's dumb. And I was like, I find I'm 
make more friends with people and you're like, oh shit, you also like fill in the blank arbitrary thing. So we've been doing it for six or seven years now. Yeah. And, and, I, and you know, people, people seem to enjoy it. And we built literally like, I mean, everybody says this, but like literally the best community of like listeners and people like I, I don't know what I did to like deserve the, the listener base that we have because they are, you know, first of all, alive. Because right. I literally, when we started our Patreon, I literally had to explain to people, like, you guys don't understand. I don't check the back end at all. I just post it out there and then I have to get back to work. So I don't know you guys exist. Yeah. Breaking my brain. Yeah. But, uh, we have, you know, present company included, like some of the coolest people who listen and interact with us on it. So that's, I'm really proud of that. This is rad. I do it with my, my, my dear friend, Matthew Burnside. Yeah. And we come out every Wednesday. Uh, we are, are in independent, so no network. We do it all ourselves. And so you can check that out. You know, we've got some, some real humdingers episodes. If you dig through that back catalog, we have a seven hour, two part explanation of the invisibles from Grant Morrison. And it is not an issue by issue thing. It is me and my fellow chaos mag magician friend, Brent Schmidt, breaking down chaos magic, the nature of the universe, uh, all sorts of shit. It's real fun. You know, so I have that. I have a horror podcast I started last year uh, with uh, with my dear friend Jen Saunderson. Uh, we are both obsessed with horror movies, and it's it's ninety percent of what we talk about when we hang out, anyways. And so at one point we realized we should maybe just turn it into a show. Uh, yeah. And and it we are actually weekly right now on that because we're during quarantine doing a movie club, where each week her and I trade off picking a movie, and, uh, and then we sit and talk about it for like an hour, hour and a half. You can can go back and listen. We're on our fourth episode this week for the movie club we've so far done torso the italian giallo which was a gen pick which is great it's an awesome sleazy ass giallo movie i picked among the living which is a very upsetting french film <laughs> uh it's uh, on shutter it's from the guys who made inside do with that information what you will and if you don't know don't look it up uh and then uh we just did tucker and dale versus evil uh which is a movie that everybody but me loves uh and really we watched it uh, oh, go listen to the episode. I yeah. uh, go on at quite length about it. I don't <laughs> like that movie. And so we've been going back and forth on those. They've been a ton of fun. I There are a few things in life more fun than just like sitting talking about horror movies with Jen Saunderson. So mm -hmm. like it's a it's a fun time. And then uh, I am the producer on the Jackie and Lori show. Not like they need a plug, but they're, it's, uh, if you're a comedian out there listening to this, it's for uh, one hour a week. Two of the greatest comedians of all time uh, sit and talk shit and talk about the kind of comedy stuff other podcasts don't talk about because right. they're not talking about like the history of it or the reverence. They're talking about their process of making comedy. And and it's two people who never stop making comedy. They are both machines. They are both well-oiled, skilled machines. And you could do a lot worse as a comedian than just listening to every single episode of that show. You wouldn't be a worse comedian after listening to their show. So that's worth listening to. Uh, it's a, I love working on it. And uh, I have a couple albums out. I'll promote the two good ones yeah. uh, that are available on <laughs> Apple and Spotify. They're all uh, good, man. I have uh, an album called I'm a Person from, from 2016 that is uh, recorded at Meltdown uh, and then on Apple and Spotify. And then I have one that came out last year called Absolute Terror. Probably my, you know, I mean, they'll, I feel like the one I just did will always be the one I think is best until the next one comes out. Because I thought, you know, I'm a person as good as comedy can get. Now I listen to it and go, like, oh, I change huge parts of this yeah. you know, versus how I do it now. But it's, I like bands that just kind of open source their development process through their work. Of you know? course. Like, you know, being a big fan of stuff like, you know, all bands basically, but, you know, like a, like a Neil Young or, or something like that, where it's just like, I'm just going to keep putting shit out. Yeah. Like, is awesome. And so kind of doing the Carlin thing of just every three years, hopefully I've got an hour's worth and I'll go do. I've kind of got a loose date for the next one. So go check out Absolute Terror now while I finish the second half of the next hour. Yeah, man, for sure. And you're working um, on a new one now, right? 
Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, I don't. I don't think I've set the title publicly yet, so I'll maybe wait on that. Yeah, but I've for got sure. a loose. I've got a loose date, location, and title, and a half an hour's worth of stuff already, and that's, that's awesome. the fastest the record has come together. So I'm a little nervous. That's great. Um, yeah, man. But, I, I so totally that, that's that. and they're all on my label, Radland Records. You can follow Radland Records on on Spotify and Instagram. If you, or, I mean, or on Instagram and uh, Twitter. If you do message them, just know that you are messaging my girlfriend Taylor and not me because she runs the social media. Because I'm bad at it. <laughs> like the only reason that I have social media is to interact with people from podcasts like you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, it's that kind of thing. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I should promote. That's probably enough, right? I think so. I, I feel like such the a only thing. Like, the- what do you want to promote? And other people are like, here's my Twitter. It's all I got. And I'm like, here's my 19 things because I can't say no. The only thing you forgot is that your ho- the name of your horror podcast is Everything Is Scary, right? Oh, what did I say? I didn't. Name you didn't it. say it. Oh yeah, everything is scary. The That's okay. Everything is scary. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I I listen to all those podcasts. They're oh, they're right. all really fun. Podcasting is my favorite form of media. Absolutely. And uh, you know, most of my entertainment is is podcast stuff. You know, especially when I'm working because I drive so much because I live outside of the city. That like it's a format that I really love and I really try to support and and because it is you know I maintain like the last truly like independent media format and yeah. as you know. Uh, you know, companies and corporations try to like slowly take away people's abilities to like speak freely and exchange for like, you know, great documentaries about tiger criminals. Uh, (laughs) They, you know, make it harder and harder. So the fact that there are people out there every day starting stuff and making things and, you know, buying cheap recording equipment and and doing whatever their weird thing in the world is like the number of things I've seen succeed that started off of something that would have been said to niche by a guy in a suit who's never made anything before, like really, gives me hope for the future, you know, because it's a scary industry being in entertainment. Anytime you can find that it's like, oh, there are ways that you can be empowered to do stuff. And, and you know, for so many people out there don't even have the option of living in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know? And so, like, that's not even part of the thing. The fact that you can do so much stuff in podcasting is such an incredible, you know, even with YouTube, they make it harder and harder to find stuff, you know, and you can get it out there, but it's harder. Like, whereas podcasting, it's just like, it's just cool. But there's a whole kind of growing generation of, like, personalities you know and shit like that you know that that come out of this you know and and across the board you know everything from like chapo trap house to the bechtel cast to blank check to last podcast on the left like these are all these kind of incredible things that are like made by very smart people who might not traditionally get seen by kind of like boring short-sighted executives right absolutely Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, Kyle. Thanks for everything, man, for for your time and for just being an inspirational dude and for your kindness. Yeah, man, all that stuff. For me, if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram at Mike Valdez, on Twitter at I am Mike Valdez, and you can go to whoismikevaldez.com to find out the answer to that question. And that is it, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't shout out, but his OnlyFans is also pretty great. Yeah, it is pretty, pretty great. Just electric teddy bear. Yeah, man. They they actually pay me to put clothes on. So, (laughs) (laughs) Not like a lot of layers, so it's still a fetish. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, he's wearing 19 (laughs) t-shirts. I didn't even know cursive made 19 (laughs) t-shirts. That was a reference for only me, but I love it. I love it so much. I only have 17 cursive t-shirts, though. The only amount they've made. Yeah, exactly. The only amount they've made. Gotta get that 20th anniversary ugly organ shirt. (laughs) Right. 25th domestic is right around the corner, so that's 17, 18, 19. (laughs) Right.
<laughs> oh, this man. is for no one except maybe. I like to assume Tim Casher silently listens to your show. Oh, I'd love it. <laughs> that's a fun game pick somebody you like who would absolutely not listen to your work and assume they listen regularly <laughs> that's one of my favorite games that's really that's really tough i don't know man <laughs> i i don't know maybe i'd pick like pete holmes or something yeah. pete holmes or would never listen to my you podcast. pick somebody who's like a weird pick like you find out like eric stone street secretly loves your show oh my gosh because it's would... like not a way where you can like you can't like brag about it because people are like what like people are people are more like like not impressed they're more just like how do you know that and why does he do it right oh man <laughs> that's so good yeah, man. Uh, guys, I don't mean to brag, but Kathleen Keener tweets at us about the show sometimes with her thoughts. <laughs> like, why? I don't know. Not to brag, but Michael J. Just Fox got... emailed me last week about how turns much he out, loves my show. Turns out me and Michael J. Fox both big boosters for Extreme Ghostbusters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I heard it. I was really defending it on the show. People, he, His people got us in touch. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, anyway, guys, that has been an episode. This is Child Like It Best with Mike Valdez. Uh, Subscribe. Tell all your friends so we can grow this family. Review us and give us five stars. Say something nice. Bye, besties. Bye.